Morelia Python Radio with your hosts, Eric Burke and Owen McIntyre. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Morelia Python Radio. Tonight, we are doing our annual breeding season episode, um, and we're changing it up a little bit. Uh, we got a special guest that's going to be joining us in a minute, uh, none other than Keith McPeak. Um, he's an awesome guy. He's been on the show a few mm-hmm. times. Uh, I think when it comes to breeding pythons, this guy has a wealth of knowledge. So a couple things that we're going to do. So we're hoping that, you know, both beginners and more advanced keepers can get something out of the show. We're just going to run through like what you would typically do in a breeding season. We have some topics that we're going to hit on. I'm sure we'll go off the rails a little bit and talk about some 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 other stuff that's off topic, but all in the in the spirit of breeding pythons because here up in the northern hemisphere it is breeding season time. And um I don't know about you, Owen, but maybe because I took the year off, I am freaking right. psyched about breeding season this year. I mean, you know well, Yeah. <laughs> I mean this is like it, it's I like should you be took- right. <laughs> Of course. It's like how, you know, how you go to like Florida every year and stuff like that. Imagine skipping yeah. it for one year. And like the the following year, you're going to be really jazzed up that you get to actually go again. You're going to kind of forget all the things that annoyed you about it the last time you went or something like that. So, yeah, I right. mean, of course you're jazzed. Plus, you skipped the year. So not only do you have to catch up on the animals that, you, that were already ready and the pairs that you already had planned that would have happened last year, you have a bunch of new animals that are now old enough that can join in. So it's like you're it, everything's rolling in the right direction for you. You got a not, lot of stuff getting ready to roll. So yeah, yeah, it should be fun, man. It's all carpets oh. this year, but watch out, man. In about five years' time, it's going to be <laughs> it's well, going to be great. Yeah, I, I I got you. I mean, you know, uh, I was over at your place uh, this weekend, this past the past weekend, right? Was it? Yeah. Yes. Um, yep. And I was checking out all the the weird um, non carpet, non Morelia stuff that you were that was running around your house. So, yeah, dude. Like in a couple of years, you're going to be mostly other stuff, and then maybe like three or four carpet pairs. So, <laughs> yeah, I'll do IJs, Darwins, Inlands, and everything else. <laughs> everything else. Everything else under the sun. You know, but yeah. that's it. Yeah. But, uh, no, nah, man. Yeah. It was, uh, yeah, it was cool hanging out with you guys again. You and Matt mm-hmm. stopped over just to see, uh, of course you manhandled my bar neck. Uh, but I, I think did, pretty chill. I didn't, I didn't die. <laughs> like, yes. you know, it was, uh, yeah. There was a moment there where I'm like, if it does bite me, these assholes are going to take pictures and not help me. <laughs> so <it's> like, <laughs> there was that yeah. moment of I'll have, I'll be bleeding for a while. So, you know, but she seemed very, very chill and very, very calm for a bar neck. So, um, and I know that you're still probably getting used to her surroundings uh, and settling in, but you know, that, yeah. she's a gorgeous animal. Like, you know, that was that was a good pickup. So, yeah, yeah, I'm hoping. Uh, who knows? Maybe in a couple years. Well, I have to find a male for her first, but uh, right, we'll see. So, um, I did not think that I wanted to steal your Malukin, but. Now I do. So um, uh, congratulations for that. Um, dude, geez. isn't that thing oh nice, my man? God. I texted Chris. I said, I think Eric has the best Malukin I've ever seen. And he texted me back 
son of a bitch. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. <laughs> I feel so bad, but at the same no, time, did, I don't. He did want me, no, no. He did want me to say that he, you know, that you know, he, he does that in all good fun. I mean, he's not. He, he doesn't blame. Yeah. He's not mad or anything like that. But you know. But he was just like son of a bitch. <laughs> no, so, I know the feeling, man. I know the feeling. Yeah, I know. Chasing something, and then you're like, "What? Why did you? What?" <laughs> <laughs> but but that animal was gorgeous. Your pop one, I like for all the wrong reasons because it's angry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's hissy. It stares oh. at you. It's like stares you down. It's like, oh yeah. I'm like, this thing should belong in my collection. It it just hates people, and I'm like, oh, this is so cool. So yeah, you know. I didn't uh, I didn't get to talk about the uh, when I when mm. I got that so mm-hmm. because it came on Wednesday of last week and not on Happy Snake Tuesday. Um, <laughs> <laughs> We're not calling it that. <laughs> that, well, is not, that is not that is not called today Happy Snake Tuesday. But <laughs> that <stop> anyway, <laughs> um, uh, you know so. I, I, I thought it was a lot smaller than what it was, right? So right. I thought it was smaller, right? And so I I didn't make um, uh, arrangements for, you know, such a big snake. Um, oh, she's, so, she's pretty big. Yeah, she's probably, what would you say, five foot? Five I foot? would say. Yeah, she's I mean, she's she, probably she, like she my that. adult, like an adult carpet of mine, right? Yeah, of yours, yeah. Uh, an adult female yeah. carpet of yours. She took... That medium rat, no freaking problem. Is that a medium oh, rat? Oh, yeah. I don't know what you're – okay. Yeah, it was a medium rat. So, um, so I, 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 I was like, oh, shit. So I, I had to improvise. So immediately, uh, you know, I unpacked her. I, I just kind of put her – the only thing I had was like a glass aquarium. And all, I, all I'm thinking mm-hmm. is Rob telling me that like – a pop one is so strong that if it just pushed, it could just break the glass, you know? And it's just like, Oh shit. Um, yeah, Rob, so, Rob's random reptile facts can be terrifying. All right. I mean, yes, like, yes, he, man. They're, they're yeah, very he's not scary. very good at that. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah. It ruins the party. Um, so. Yeah. so I immediately, I, I put her in that, in that cage, but I didn't take her out of the bag. Cause I was like, you know, I'm just going to kind of let her crawl out on her own type of deal. But, um, I, uh, I immediately got on the in on the internet and ordered up some cages, which I'm actually pretty excited about because yeah, I got to be honest, nice. I, I I have to be honest, you know, you, I'm more of a rat guy with certain mm-hmm. things, but it's pretty badass looking and seeing your snake in the cage and being able to observe it and see what it's doing, you know, that mm-hmm. is pretty cool. So I give it that. Um, so I ordered a bunch of uh, T8 AP cages, uh, so I have a nice stack of cages. I got to get your bread lie in a cage as well. Um, so <laughs> got to get yeah, her in here in this cool room and get her going. Um, so, so there's that. But the, here's the thing. So, like, as I'm on yeah. the internet, the snake is coming out, right? And I, I, I quickly <laughs> look around and I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to reach in and take out the bag. Well, it's like one of those pull lids, you know what I mean, where it kind of locks. Right, you just slide it. Yeah, you slide it. So yeah. I go and I'm I'm like trying to slide it back and all I see is I see the snake just kind of like it comes up over the over the lid and it just uh-huh. kind of turns around slowly like I've never seen a python <laughs> do this and it just kind of looks at me and I'm looking at it and it's looking <laughs> at me and it's saying I, I mean and again I'm just kind of guessing this but it had to look like I 
think I could probably eat you. I'm no, not I'm gonna ta- really I'm gonna take sure. you out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm gonna try. It's like, um, <laughs> so yeah, it was exciting, but man, what cool yeah. snakes, man! So yes. different than olive python. So if you dark. think that poplins and olives are the same, you, it's like a biok and an aru chondro. Nothing alike. Yeah, nothing alike. You haven't you haven't seen yeah. them in person. If you still believe no. that they are the same, and it's funny because after we talked, I get on. King Snake, and uh-huh. some people are selling baby pop ones, and they're just like, oh, it's pythons. I'm like, this, but they're not. They are yeah. not the same animal. And it's like, I, I would, they, they don't act the same. From what I've seen, from what I've observed from your pop, just your pop one, and my Australian olives, they don't act the same at all. Like, at all. Wow. So, yeah, when you guys were over, when you guys were over, I, um, I pulled out the um, uh, my olive python, and the yeah. length of the head is just crazy <laughs> as compared to, like, you know, looking at – it's completely opposite. You know, Pop One's yeah. head's short and stocky and the – you know, Like a bulldog head. Cool. Like, you, you know, you were like bulldog versus other dogs. It's like that's pretty accurate in my opinion. They have a very blocky kind of stumped up head. It's uh, – but they're still yeah. so cool, and that's and I hate you because it's like I didn't want them. I didn't want them, and now I'm like, oh. oh, oh, oh. <laughs> and you didn't Maybe even get to handle it. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I also got a uh, a pair of them that are captive born and bred, and yeah. I got that from um, this guy Kevin. I hope I pronounce his name right, Walensky or something like that, something like that, mm-hmm. and. Uh, it's so funny. I talked about them, uh, what was it, two weeks ago or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. When I'm when I'm doing deals, when you're interviewing the guests and I'm on, you know, on mute, <laughs> I'm always doing these deals. But uh, by the end of the show, I'm sending Owen a picture, like, check out what I just got. I bought this. Like, <laughs> what? Like, what? <laughs> when did you do this? Yeah, it's like, yeah, that's. Uh, you know, that's show. what I get for focusing on making quality <laughs> program while you're shopping. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that's just silly, I mean, man. <laughs> that's um, adorable. Shut up, you. It's like, yeah. So, uh, so I, I got a uh, a pair of Captain, and I think he's, I think he sold out of them that quick, man. No way. That quick, like, yeah, people were just like chomping at the bit to get them. So, I, you know, weather wise and whatnot, as soon as we work it out, he'll ship them. But uh, I'm pretty excited about that. So, I do have a trio now 1.2 of them and then today um mm-hmm. i got another dream species of mine is um oh dwarf right. berm uh so it's uh <laughs> it's a subspecies of the burmese python uh python uh bivitatus uh and they're called python bivitatus progshy uh so man are they little feisty sons of bitches <laughs> like uh such spirit in these uh in these guys so they max out at about eight feet which that's pretty cool for a berm that is um, pretty cool for a berm and uh these are f2s uh they were produced by bob clark and um yeah yeah oh that's uh, pretty cool, cool that they're f2s i mean so i assume you know wild caught grandparents and now we're building up a captive yeah. population that, that's kind of that's badass and you know what? Doing the whole thing of the uh, educational programs like I used to do at the zoo, 
an eight uh-huh. foot Burmese python is like perfect because it's big enough to be like, oh my god, and then it's but I can easily handle it with one person. It's when I try to get like you know the twenty foot retic outside is when I need like a team of people. So that's kind of awesome that you can get something that doesn't get huge. Yeah. So yeah, man. Slowly the the collection is slowly coming together, and it was, I, I haven't been happier, man. Well, really it was happy. funny because it was funny because you were going through your room and you're like, you know, oh, check out the Angolans. And I'm like, ah, the bumpy ball pythons. And then we got to see the ring pythons. Then we got to see the olive pythons. We got to see your water pythons. You see your, all your different scrub pythons. You got to see, you know, you showed me an IJ that I actually thought was pretty. It's been an astonishing visit. <laughs> <laughs> that was a record-breaking uh, it was. It, because... I felt so weird leaving. Yeah, it was. <laughs> I'm glad you said it because I didn't want to bring it up for the air. <laughs> You know, I wasn't going to do uh, that to you, and uh, so you said it, but yeah, that's, dude, that's I was, a stunner, I was in a man. generous, I was in a generous, generous mood, because do you remember what I came into your house with? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Your, your, your rough scales. My babies are home. <laughs> it's like, so I'm, yeah. I've been obsessing over them pretty much the past, like, four days. So, like, and it's <laughs> weird, because their cage is, like, mulched, has lights in it has a shelf and it's like over here's a carpet python on paper with a plastic bin. And it's like, I'm like, I really hope these guys can't realize favoritism's going on here. So it's like, Oh man. Yeah. You're, you're going to start calling your carpets crappets. Crappets. Yeah. They're, 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 they're the crappets. Skipping <laughs> the crappets. So, you know, having, yeah. doing all that. And, it, it, and to be honest, you know, it, it, it's good that you, that, to see you with all the excitement in your collection and to not have that mechanical, even though you never did have like a mechanical, this drawer is this, this drawer is this. Here's another 25 carpet pythons. Because it's like having that breakup of your like, oh, these are the carpets. Oh, yeah, here's my retick. It's like that is what brings kind of the passion and brings the joy back into the collection because it's like everything's different. So um, it's awesome. And uh, get jealous sometimes of your shit. So I'm just going to sit here, wait patiently for you to breed it. So yeah, well, you'll produce rough scales probably before I buy them. So you know, I'm sure yeah, we can so. work something out. <laughs> well, so what we've what we've what we've come up with is between you, me, you, and Matt, yes. we pretty much have <laughs> pretty much have it all. Have it all, you know. <laughs> I mean, in, between the three of us, you know, um, Bolins. <laughs> yeah, that's um, the only thing we don't have. That's the last Python I'm gonna buy. It's gonna be Bolins. Yeah. You know, that's gonna be. So, I think one. between. Three of us, you, me, and Matt, we're missing Boland's python. Um, uh, we can't get Owen Pelly pythons, so that one. Or King Horn Eye. Yeah, we can't get that either. So, um, but I'm pretty sure that's. I mean, Boland's, and I'm pretty sure we had a few other ones that are on the list of shit we don't have. Um, but it's just funny that way, and uh, it's kind of awesome because it's like I know what you guys have, and you guys know what I have, and it's going to be like one of those. We're all just waiting for each other to breed the fun stuff, and then we're all just going to start swapping. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, yeah. yeah I don't need yeah, to go exactly. get Tanzania. I know where they are, <laughs> and I'll wait for no. Matt. You know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, when I want to try this breed... species out. Yeah, exactly. When when you breed Angolan pythons, I mean, I'm going to change the subject, but um, yeah, <laughs> I wasn't going to bring that one up either. But you know, I don't know. <laughs> they're cool they're, snakes, they're... man. That's the problem. Is I cool. went so far south calling them bumpy ball pythons. If I buy them, Rob Stone will never forgive me. 
and or let it live, uh, let me live it down. So <laughs> there'll be a well, shirt. There'll be a shirt made. No, but you know and what? Next Tinley, they'll be. <laughs> I you like bumpy ball, ball pythons with your, ball with your two thumbs up. I have to watch <laughs> what I do now because there's yeah. a looming threat of t-shirts. Yeah, very critical, yeah. very critical. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I can see where people would say that about them. But um, mm. once you actually – especially with – I think as they get bigger, I think that that yeah. sort of goes away because they're very flat, which I think you saw when they were out. They were mm-hmm. kind of like really kind of flat and not – not like a ball python at all. They're they're more like yeah. it's almost like they're more like a like an African rock. It's like it's almost like they're in between those two. You know what I mean? Like they're somewhere somehow yeah. in between them. But they're cool snakes, man. I can't wait. <clears throat> you know, I was real excited about Carpet Fest when <laughs> you know I had carpets and stuff. But now it's right. like. Now I got a oh, bunch of wow. shit. <laughs> this is going to be like a goddamn zoo people coming to and visiting. Like, oh, here you go. Here you go. Check this well, out. You know, some people never get to see this stuff. So No. And that's what happens after every carpet fest where there's something that people don't normally get to see. It's like people run out and buy it. Like the two carpet fests that I had here at my place, the first year everybody went out and got rough scales. The second year everybody went out and got olive pythons. So it's like yeah. sometimes having the exposure to that animal. And seeing it in person and touching it just just like puts it all aside, gets it. Maybe it was on your list and it was really far down, but maybe seeing it in person and holding it puts it so far up in the list that like you go home and immediately go get it. So, um, you know, I I wouldn't be surprised if everybody comes and then there's a rush on ring pythons. So, you know. Yeah. Another cool species. And, you know, I'm, I'm interested to, so, one of the one of the things too about tonight's episode that I wanted to make sure that we uh, that, that people understand when we're going in is that, you know, the three of us, me, you, Keith, all have these uh, et cetera, if you will, projects that you know some of it is wild caught stuff, some of mm-hmm. it is captive hatch, some of it you know all these different things, and some of them have not been bred, you know. So I thought it would be interesting to sort of you know, go through our process and sort of like thinking out loud of like, you know, how, how, how do you even start, you know, and how, where do you come up with like, how do you even start to put together a program of thinking of, you know, how you're going to breed this species that really hasn't been bred in captivity and, um, you know, uh, getting them established and, and stuff like that. So, you know, I'm looking forward to that. But uh, real quick before we uh, click Keith on, I just wanted to say, <laughs> it feels weird, like feels like, it's an off night because last night I did a podcast as well. Uh, I was a guest on from the ground up uh podcast and uh, you know, those, those, uh, it was awesome. It was, it was a good time. It was, it was really, really kind of um, strange to be on the other side, you know, like, cause sometimes like when we're doing the show, I don't know about you Owen, but I feel like yeah. when, when we talk about our own stuff, sometimes too much, it seems like, you know, people don't want to hear about us. You know what I mean? And then like when you're yeah. on a show and you're like, I don't you're... it's hard to talk about us. I mean, there was that, it, it's, it's like when I did, um, uh, GTP keeper and buddy starts just talking about, you know, me and he's like, you, you did this, you did this, you did this. The only thing I could say to him was correct. Cause I, <laughs> I, I don't, <laughs> uh, huh. Yeah. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, though, when you do a podcast every freaking Tuesday, say something. It's like, yeah, it's, yeah. you should be much better at this. <laughs> I should be better at this. 
Yeah. So, yeah, I mean. I picked you for a reason, and you were failing me. You yeah, know, you, but. Um, you suck at this. It's like, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, there's, there's that. So, obviously, when we do kind of stuff like that, uh, I mean, it, 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 it's weird. It just feels weird and odd. But I was going to write. I, 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 my brain totally got away from me, but I was going to write some question and send it to them about like, you know, something about the podcast and then sign it uh, a Sasquatch hunting enthusiast and see how long it took you. <laughs> but like it, so the, the day totally got away from me. And I like, I realized today when you were like, Oh, the podcast, but it went well. And I'm like, Oh shit. It's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Next time. <laughs> uh, yeah. But uh, if you get a chance, you should check it out. They're, they're doing a good job over there. And, um, you know, um, now, the one thing I can say about them so far is that at least mm-hmm. they listen to one thing that we're doing is that they're being consistent. So I think every Monday they do they do a podcast, and I think it comes up on iTunes every Tuesday, but um, like mm-hmm. Tuesday morning or Tuesday afternoon or something like that. But uh, oh, yeah, yeah, the two of them were, were <laughs> yeah were really were really really just an it was just an awesome experience. So nice. um, yeah, it was good. So. They're actually moving up to Philly. Um, oh, oh, sweet Jesus! <laughs> yeah, so they're coming up to Philly, and I told them a couple things. Well, one, it's much easier to breed pythons in Philly or Pennsylvania than it is to uh, breed them in uh, Texas. I would imagine because yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I would agree. Trying to, that. to cool stuff down and stuff like that. It's much easier up here on the East Coast, like in the Northeast. Mm-hmm. Um, and then number two, I told them, you know, you, you guys will be in the you know, there's a lot that goes on in this like northeast section from what would you say like New York, even probably higher up than New York, but from New York to like uh, Maryland, there's like a it's yeah, like really I, mean, I would say uh, New, New Hampshire of kind of I would say the New Hampshire because yeah. there's a lot of shows kind of up in that area stuff like that. So yeah, I mean from all the way up there, if you go by basically just by the reptile shows um, that are really large on this side and just a plethora because I mean like. You know, being in Texas, if there was a show and a state over, that's like an eight-hour drive, depending on where you are in Texas. Or something like that. You know, right. I'm here and I'm like, oh, got to go to Maryland, and I like take two hours and I go to Maryland. So like that, sure, having shows in different states and having all the states so close to each other does open up that opportunity for this different stuff like that. So right. um, yeah, I I I definitely love the idea of the the Northeast kind of stuff. So yeah, yeah. cool. And carpet festival right. in the Northeast, the original. That's right, chapter. the original yeah. OG. Now apparently God Evan damn. is coming up this way, but you know I, I busted his stones a little bit, and I said that I won't believe it until I see it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Until until he's standing in front of Jim Stakes asking for with or without. I, I got. I, you you got to do that right. It, don't don't do that wrong. Yeah. Don't mess that up. You know? <laughs> so, yeah, that's the one thing I did tell him. She's like, can I put pepper jack on it? I was like, no, dear God, (laughs) you will be stunned. God damn it. (laughs) Move back to Texas. (laughs) Yes. Bring your own pepper jack. That's right. Yeah. Pepper jack and Swiss cheese. I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't know know either. So anyway. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Let's get Keith on here and let's get talking about some breeding. Keith. Oh, snakes. <laughs> hey. hey, what's, what's up, man? Oh, hey, I, just, I just I just had to kick Ian Bissell out of my house because I told him I was coming on with you guys. 
he's up from Florida and he came over for a visit to see the collection. And I kept looking at my watch and looking at my watch. I'm like, dude, it's nine o'clock. You gotta go. <laughs> <laughs> You're out. You know, but, Sorry, but Ian. He should, Ian should know what's going on and, you know, he knows who we are. So don't feel too bad about throwing him out. Like, you know, if you needed to, I would have called and told him to get out of your house. So that's I'm fine. Like, uh, I'm like pushing him out the door. He's like, but we have more to talk about. I'm like, Eric and Owen are waiting. You got to go. <laughs> Sorry, man. Uh, that's cool. I didn't know he was up. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, he he cool. comes up for Thanksgiving or something like that. He's got family up in this area, so he snuck out for a couple hours and came over. It was nice to see him. Oh, that's why he awesome. didn't want to go back. Awesome. All right, I got you. So, <laughs> he's, you know. so what was – has he ever seen Bull and I? Uh, yeah, he has in the past, but, you know, he got to interact with him a little bit here. So I think he enjoyed that. I don't know if he's ever got to actually, uh, hold and touch one and feel the texture of the skin and all that kind of stuff. So I think he was, um, he was definitely in awe of the look of them for sure. You know? Well, they're gorgeous. Yeah. I I got the last big female, you know, that she's like, you know, she's gotta be 10, 11 feet, you know? And I was showing him some of the smaller ones. And he's like, wow, they got a lot more size on them. I look at them, I smile, and I shake my head. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so I, oh, I opened have... up the other cage, and he kind of just jaw, jaw dropped a little bit as I, you know, wheeled her out onto the floor, and she spread out all 10 feet of her. She's just an impressive <laughs> animal. She's such a baby, you know, so, yeah, it was cool. Nice, that awesome. nice. That is going to be the last species that I get on my list, Keith. Is is bull and I? You know. Well, I hope it's for me too. So I hope I I, I hope I I'm going to be able to say, hey, I I got you guys some bull. That'd oh, be that awesome. would be awesome. Yeah. You know, we keep saying that it's like if anybody can get bull and I, we're like, uh, you know, that would be awesome. Oh, and Keith, Keith should definitely should definitely get his bull and I. So you know, you're yeah. the one we hope for. I'm know. trying, man. I'm trying. So. I know this is we're we're jumping ahead a little bit, but I want to hit on this. I mean, do you, are you feeling confident this season? Have you have you have you tweaked some confident. things? I I feel confident every season. You know, I go I go into it like this is it. I figured it out. This is what right. it's gonna take. You know, and then I'll bounce it off of Ari, and I'll bounce it off of Frederick, and they're like, "Yeah, man, that sounds fantastic." I'm like, "Great, I got this." And, <laughs> uh, I saw uh, I saw your question that you posed to I think you you did it on Facebook to Ari about the water and like you know you know uh, forget how you phrased it but like how close are they to water what kind of you know is it standing water that kind of thing um, what what yeah. made you think that well we're looking we're looking for what is the trigger what is different what is out there that you know we're not all thinking of so i always try to think outside the box so you know is is water a factor is it is it a factor because they the area that they're in is so limestone saturated which we used in the fish industry right you use Mm-hmm. Stuff like that to raise the alkalinity and hardness of the water. So, is there something missing in that avenue? You know, if uh, if somebody could do a test, let's see what the water is out there. And you know, it's just another thing that I put in the toolbox, possibly. Right. But you know, for Frederick is the thing that always throws the monkey wrench into whatever <laughs> idea I'm going about. 
you know, because I'll be like, this is it. I'm going to bounce this off of Fred. And he goes, nah, I have no, I don't do anything like that. So I'm like, well, I go back to you. Damn it. <laughs> you know? Son of a bitch. <laughs> you know, oh, I, I yeah. keep waiting for him to say, that's it. Keep, you that's it. You figured it out. <laughs> Like, but, like uh, keeping um, it from you, like you know, I know he yeah. would probably tell you. Oh so, yeah, no, I, you know, but yeah. I, I, I don't even know if Frederick knows what his trigger is. You know what I mean? He's, yeah. he's in just such a routine, and he's just got the rhythm. I always call it the rhythm of the room. You know, it takes a while to get that mm. rhythm of the room, and he's got the rhythm with the snakes right now. And, and, and he's actually told me, he goes, I'm not really sure what the trigger is. You know, he goes, I don't know what I'm doing differently than you. So. And, you know, if there's one thing about Frederick, it's definitely he's a very open, honest, and helpful guy. So, you know, he's definitely very encouraging, supportive of everything that I'm doing. And we just you can't figure out what I'm doing different than he's doing, you know. Right, right. So it's, it's, so, it's a challenge. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, I hope you do have success, man. And if you Thank do you. produce them uh, this year and, and you actually – you know, decide that you're going to sell some of them, then, you know, then <laughs> they'll the move up hurdle. on the yeah. list. <laughs> yeah. They'll move up on my list. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, they, they, I mean, they, those things are definitely, if I get them, you know, I, I, they're definitely just going to people such as yourself that are looking to do exactly what Ari, Frederick, myself are trying to do with the species in captivity. You know, they're not going to go yeah. on the, on the market for, open sale or anything like that, they definitely go, I'd rather get them in the hands of people like that than, than sell them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Sure. So, yeah, absolutely. If you see a king snake ad with your name on it, it's an imposter. So, got it. <laughs> absolutely. <You> know, <laughs> let me ask you this, Keith, because you, you've, you've been in the hobby uh, a bit. Like, back back in the early days, um, you know, like when, when it was – really starting to get kicking and people were like collecting these species and all, and like trying to get all these different species was, was there more of a sense of, uh, you know, uh, how can I say this? Like, you know, if your buddy produced, uh, you know, whatever is some kind of uh, whatever, say you produce some blood pythons and, and this other guy produced some water pythons. Was there a lot more of like, you know, swapping species so much than, you know, paying for stuff you know what I mean? Yeah, like it, it wasn't really you know, geared towards money. No, it, when I was first in it, I mean, there, there was definitely, you know, a, a Florida crew that was, you know, in it and importing the stuff and out there to make money and all that kind of stuff. But the, the people at the hobbyist level definitely uh-huh. weren't even looking to swap. If you needed a male, this or that, or the other thing, and they had it, you got it. You know what I mean? Um, oh, okay. There was a lot of, free flowing of animals um, between collectors without a doubt. You know, there was probably five or six people I can think of off the top of my head that were right in this area, you know, John Wilborg and some other people that were close in this area. And we just swapped animals all the time. Whatever you needed, you got, you know what I mean? If you wanted, you got. And that's how it worked for a long time back then. And it was good. But, you know, I'm actually finding that, that now with some keepers too, you know, I got people sending me um, animals out of the blue because, you know, I got, you know, the Bolins from that guy. I won't sure. want to say his name, but he sent me a male Bolin eye because he really thinks that I have a shot at doing it. And he lost his female. So he sent me a male mm-hmm. Bolin eye. 
for nothing except, hey, Keith, do something good with this animal. You do something good with it. You know, give me a pair back down the road. I mean, right. who gives somebody else a five thousand dollars snake? You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. So yeah. you know, I do. I do see that trend happening again um, amongst you know the tight knit community that we all seem to be in right now, and I, that is really encouraging, making me very happy to to see that kind of mentality again. You know. Yeah, I noticed that. You know, maybe you guys have already experienced this, but like sort of like being really into like just one particular species for so long. um, Now that I'm like getting into these different species, it's like a different group of people almost like it's it's almost like the people that are like now uh, are, are messaging me or talking to me or whatever are people that, you know, it's not about money at all. You know, it's just right. about, wow, that's really cool. That's, I can't believe, you know, I've always liked that species. What are they like? You know, you know this is my experience with them. And here's, here's, here's some tips for keep, you know what I mean? And it's, it's really you know kind of awesome. So I, yeah. I don't know if it's the, the hobby is changing or if it's just you and I, cause I feel the same way you and I and others are gravitating towards that group of keepers. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because yeah. there still are very many, you know, money-motivated uh, keepers out there also, but I've sure. definitely gravitated more towards, you know, Rob Stone is a perfect example right there. I'll text him out of the blue. It could be the stupidest thing about scale <laughs> I saw on a snake's tail and what its purpose could be, and Rob right. would dive right into that conversation and, you know, go back and forth for hours with you about anything like that, you know, and there's no... Yeah. monetary thing there. It's just the love and the passion of the animals and, and, and trying to figure things out. You know, I think that's awesome. I think, I, I think I'm just gravitating towards that crowd of people nowadays. You know what I mean? I think you might be right. What do you think, Owen? Do you, do you find the same thing? Like I, I find it in certain circles and I wish it would happen more. Um, it almost seems like if you're in a close tight knit uh, community with a certain species, it definitely happens. I mean, I uh, got, I recently got a MBB line uh, female uh, coastal and I'm like, cool. And then I realized I don't have any males that are MBB red line. I have red, but I don't have anything that would really play to her strength. So I immediately call Howard who is on like a sandbar in the middle of the night fishing in like, I, I don't know, 30 degree weather. And he's like, you know, <laughs> Hi. I'm like, well, I'm like, we can have this conversation later. He goes, no, it's good. So after about an hour conversation, uh, you know, he's sending me a boy. Like, he's like, I got you. Don't worry about it. It's it's on its way. So it's like doing, having that is definitely something that I will, uh, that I love about the, the, the community that we're involved in. And I imagine as you work with certain species and get to know the other keepers and places like that, that you can establish those relationships. Um, but you have to, work and establish those relationships because there's always that run random person at a reptile show who come walking up to me and say, if I send you my carpets, will you breed them? And I go, what now? (laughs) Who are you? So yeah, yeah, there's, there's, yeah, Yeah. no, that that was something actually I was going to say to you, Eric, is at some point you should do a little segment about reptile shows. I'd love to be a part of that because I think, I think you guys, I think you guys could see the force at Tinley, within the circle that you, I, Matt, Bill, 
you know, all, um, Buddy Buscemi, you know, like when you're with those people, like, you know, Buddy helped me out getting those pair of rhino rats. I, mm-hmm. Can you believe this? I went to Tinley. I had like three grand saved to go to Tinley, right? Yeah, We're right. like three quarters of the way there. And I said to Teresa, holy crap, I forgot my money at home. I forgot the whole cash. So I'm going to Tinley with all these plans of getting a this and a getting a that, and I got not right. one penny in my pocket. You know, uh, and Buddy, Buddy meets me for the first time, but because I know you guys and he knows you and, you know, me and him are talking to the show, he sets me up right. with a pair of rail rats to go home with. You know what I mean? Uh, you right. know, it, it, yeah. I think the power of the show is when you go and meet people and see what they're all about. And it may not happen the first time you go to a show, but you go to a show five, ten times and you start making those connections and those friendships. I mean, that's when the doors start to open for you, you know. Mm-hmm. I think it's a really yeah. part, important part of the industry that everybody should really get back to. Yeah, I, I'm pretty yeah. sure Jason Balin, like, despised me for, like, the first year and a half that I met him because I was that <laughs> kid hanging out at his table asking a ton of questions and then, like, not buying a carpet python and running away. So, you know, that <laughs> I'm pretty sure he wanted to hit me. So, you know, but, you know, we got around it. So, but yeah. it's one of those things where it's also a wealth of knowledge and it gets you the connections, and that's why, you know, Carpet Fest was important to us and, you yeah, know, absolutely. setting that up and, you know, it's uh, – and that's why we kind of made it so it's not, you know, we don't just want Morelia people to come, you know, uh, we want everybody to come. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's, let's, let's talk about some breeding. Um, I kind of broke this thing down as just kind of an outline of things that we can talk about and all. So we kind of brought up breeding triggers. I'm curious to what you guys think is like, see, I always have this idea that, and me and Rob have talked about this multiple times. It's like, I've always wondered like why, you know, here on the East coast, uh, we, we, we do these certain things and we get success, you know, down South, they do different things and they have success on the West coast. It's, it's different. So like my thought was, is that there's like, you know, say you have five different triggers that could, that the snakes could breed. Uh, you know, if you hit two of them, you're going to have success, you know, um, what are your guys' thoughts on that? And like, what do you guys think are the most important breeding triggers? Uh, we're talking pythons just in general. Yeah. Uh, my opinion would be that the breeding triggers are obviously, uh, or the ones that I really kind of try to hit would be uh, temperature and um, uh, food availability. So, you know, over the summer it's warm. They're getting fed on a regular basis. They're getting fed, you know, the meals that would normally come to them. And then all of a sudden it starts, the meals start getting smaller and they start getting bigger spaced out and the temperature starts dropping at nighttime. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not sure if I could, I, I bet you I could probably actually do one or the other and get success with a few of my animals or even after a certain number of years, all my animals, but I prefer to have multiple triggers because you don't know what, caused that animal to do that. It could have been this, it could have been that. Um, I have a tiger female that's downstairs right now that looks very plump and I only dropped their nighttime temps a degree. So I'm like, do I throw the mail in now? And I probably will because she's looking really, really huge and I haven't done anything, but who knows? So um, there are, I imagine there's a ton of triggers, which unfortunately is, you know, you know, like Keith, is trying to find the one to 
nailed down to get the Bullens going. And there are so many different things that could be a trigger, you know, that there's a bunch. So, right. Yeah. See, see what I think too is like I say, there's a rhythm to the room, right? Mm -hmm. There's Mm -hmm. a rhythm to your snake room and you have to try different triggers at the right time to get that rhythm in sync. Now, with the blood pythons, when I was just concentrating on bloods and short tail pythons, and that's all I had in my room, it was like clockwork. Like, I knew what week to put them together. I knew, like, you know, this is... I didn't do any temperature cycling. I did completely opposite of the rest of the pack of breeders that, you know, would feed their animals, you know, to get them to ovulate. breed. I fed my animals after they had their eggs, I fed them heavy to get the weight back on the females, and then I backed off on it. And the only trigger I used with the whole collection was light cycling. I backed off of doing temperature drops and everything else with the blood pythons, and I just had a rhythm. And like clockwork, within a month of me turning my lights back on to, you know, 12, 14 hours a day, within a month, all my females, you know, you go in one day and this female's ovulating, and you go in there another day and another female. And within four weeks, all the females all ovulated within the same, you know, four-week period. And then, you know, you got your, your eggs later. And it was just like a rhythm in the room. Like it had nothing to do with the, the only trigger I was using was light cycling. And that was it. And and it was just that rhythm in the room. And once you get that rhythm figured out of when it's the fertile proper time to put your animals together and everything, you know, that's the key, I think. It's 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 routine and getting that rhythm and figuring out um, what it is to get to that rhythm. You know, that's the hard part with the Bolins or any hard three species, I think. Sure. But I, I did things completely different, but that was the rhythm of my room, and it worked, you know, flawlessly for me for a lot of years. But it was completely different than what other breeders were doing. What made you go light cycle? Like, how did you decide that well, that's how you were going to cycle? Just, you know, hearing what people were saying from their range, there, there's not a lot of variation in temperature. Um, mm-hmm. There's a rainy season and, and all that, but there's not a lot of variation in temperature. So I'm, I'm thinking, what's the trigger with that? And, and I noticed with them, actually, because I was keeping dwarf monitors for a little bit of a period there with them. And, you know, of course, my rooms were a lot warmer and, and I would always have females slugging out on me because the temperatures were too warm. So I, I was like, you know what, I'm just going to keep these guys cooler. I'm going to keep them like 80, 81 ambient, and that's what I kept them day and night. And the only thing I could think of to, to cycle them better with was light, you know, just give them more darkness and more photo period during the, when I wanted them to ovulate. And it worked like a charm. I mean, and I didn't do it gradually. I didn't do it, you know, one day, take a 15 minutes off or anything like that. They went from 14 hours right. of light and then boom to six hours of light in, in you know, one click of the, the light timer. And right. just the, the same way, you know, when I when I wanted them to ovulate, I turned it back. And, you know, there's, there's a grace period with blood pythons and whatnot, too, because they retain sperm so well. I've had females, you know, lay a clutch, not breed in the next year, and then the following year they would have a clutch not even being with a male. So they're like masters mm-hmm. at retaining sperm. So... I think a lot of that was forgiveness, too. So when I did the light cycle, you know, whether they were bred within three weeks or 
you know, three months prior, they had viable sperm in them that they could use during that light cycle change. And and, and I'm sure, right. like, the, the sense in the room from all the other animals, you know, triggered the other females to, to get into that rhythm of uh, of the room, you know? Right. Yeah. <clears throat> huh. That's interesting. You know, I never would have thought, like, uh, li- you know, because you don't hear many people talk about, you know, light cycles. Light cycles. Like, oh. Yeah. Anymore. And that was my, yeah. and that was my trigger. Wow. That's cool. Um, you know, you brought up being, uh, you know, the, the, the whole rhythm of your room type of thing. And, and, you know, when we were interviewing Ryan Young, one of the things that he talked about with breeding white lips that I just thought was awesome is like he's very consistent in his cycling. You know, and he's mm-hmm. kind of the same way. I think for the most part, I think except for Anteresia, and maybe I'm wrong, Owen, but he keeps like an ambient temp yeah. type of deal where they're at like 82 degrees and he drops. He does drop the temps a little bit at night, but he pretty much stays in that 82 to 83 degree range for pretty much everything that he breeds. And he has multiple species of python. But yeah. he noticed that the uh, the white lips, um they didn't go into his rhythm, but he kept being consistent at it. And then eventually they adjusted to his cycle and not, mm-hmm. you know, necessarily what other people were doing. Do you think that, that, you know, especially you, Keith, you might be able to comment on this, like adjusting things with the bull and I, do you think that, that, that could uh, hurt your success or. Absolutely. See, yeah. I think the best way to figure out an animal is if you can have obviously an unlimited supply of animals, you know what I mean? Because when you only have seven animals to work with, it's hard to um, say what you're doing is positive or negative, but if you have a larger sampling and it's all about confidence, I think, and sticking with what you know, what works. So if you, hit it one time with one female and you're confident in what you're doing, then you are sticking to that routine. You know, like, like I say, with my blood pythons, I knew what week to turn my lights on, what week to turn them off. And, and you just were very confident about the whole thing and, and everything was very successful. But when you're trying on a new species like this, you're constantly tinkering and altering and everything else. So I backed off on a lot of the, extreme variations and all that kind of stuff with the bowl and I, and I'm hoping that I'm getting in, into a rhythm of the room um, because I do notice things like the males going off feed now at the same time every year. And um, I'm noticing the females spending more time in the nest boxes now at the same time every year. So I am starting to see cues that the animals are becoming into a rhythm um, somewhat in, in their room because uh, I have a separate room for that, a cold room and a warm room, you know, so I definitely right, see right. things like that. And I think it's consistency without a doubt, you know, but right. not having any confidence, you know, you do keep tinkering and, and that could mm-hmm. definitely be harmful to what you're doing. So yeah. when it comes to the, uh, I don't know what you guys do when it comes to your animals, um, you wait, for a certain age um, or do you wait for a certain weight? Like do you wait for them to get a certain size before you're thinking about breeding or do you wait for them to hit like that four-year-old mark or is it kind of a mixture of both or is it just like seeing the maturity of the animal? Well, for me, again, I, you know, I'm going to go back to the blood pythons. I have right. um, 
I had a, a four-pound female um, Borneo actually mm-hmm. lay a fertile clutch of eggs, and she was only two years old. Um, but she was like one of those animals that just, you know, didn't grow as fast as the other animals or anything else. And, and I actually just put her in with a male because she was this high blue animal and I wanted to see what was going to happen with her. And sure enough, she laid a perfectly fertile clutch of nine perfect eggs and everybody hatched and everything was good. And, you know, most recommended weights at that time were like 12 pounds for a female, you know. Here's this four-pound animal. And I can remember when uh, I used to have a friend that was an importer in uh, Jersey here, and you'd go in there, and I, I can remember seeing, like, basculus lizards that, like, were these tiny little lizards, and they're dropping yeah. eggs, you know, in his in his uh, cage and stuff. And I'm like, wow, I thought those things would have to be, like, five times that size to breed, you know? <laughs> so right. I, I, I mainly go by – I would go more for um, – or age myself than overweight mm-hmm. or, or size on the animal. Frederick's uh, bull and I, as an example, are, you know, a heck of a lot smaller than Paul Miles' animals were, uh, who was, you know, the first successful person to breed them. And I would say Frederick's are, you know, literally half the size of what Paul's animals were. They were monstrous animals. Um, and it was the right. first time that he got his clutch. So, I don't know. Yeah. Very <laughs> individualistic. Yeah. I think I think you're right. I, I, well, I mean, my experience is basically with carpet pythons, but my biggest thing when it comes to those, and it might be Moralia in general, is um, the head. Um, yeah. There's a certain look that an adult carpet python. They could be like some of my animals aren't bigger than four feet long, you know. But yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, good point. They have a very mature head that looks, you know. And then I have other snakes that like. You know, they have the size, but their head is not matching their body. It looks weird. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know how to explain it, but they just they no, don't have that. No, but you're, you're exactly right. It's like that young blood python yeah, I had. She looked, she looked like a giant blood python, but she was only at four pounds. You know, she just had that mature, yeah. stocky, thick look of a mature blood python, but in a small package. You, you're exactly right. That's a good point. Right. It's kind of like me and Owen. We're probably yeah. both could be breeders, but he's bigger and I'm smaller. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But it, it, it's funny because right now um, when you have – when you start the breeding season, you have the other animals that aren't quite ready yet, and that's when you really start taking a look at them because, you know, you're, you're still feeding them, you're still cleaning them. So you're kind of in their cages more. Um, so I have <clears throat> four female carpet pythons that are not going this year but have the potential to go next year. And looking at all four of them, I think two are going to go next year and two are not just because of the size of their heads and the structure of their body. And I said this uh, kind of like to myself, like about, you know, say two weeks ago. And then looking at one tonight, when I went to go feed, her head has literally just started to become the more mature head. So she's Uh starting to get more mature, like, Almost instantaneously, like, or I'm just starting to notice it more. Um, so it's really cool to kind of see that so that maybe potentially she will go next year. So, uh, you know, answer my own question. I believe it's a mixture of age and uh, maturity. You know, uh, sometimes I have a four-year-old that is, you know, has all the size in the world and is on the same page as my other four-year-olds, but it just doesn't seem mature enough for me, so I hold it back. So, mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Hmm. You know, that's an interesting point. I wonder if it's a hormonal thing that could even be a cue to, to develop that mature look in, uh, yeah. in a snake, you know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I tried to breed one female last year, um, and she definitely was old enough, and she didn't go. She, didn't, she locked up with the male a ton of times. No eggs, mm-hmm. no nothing, no swell. Uh, over the summer, she gained weight, and her head definitely grew and became that more mature female carpet head. So I'm, I'm hopeful for this year, but it's like I, I've, I definitely I probably should have just held her back, you know. Right. So. Well, along those lines, i got a question for you guys because I mm. do do this. Do, do you guys cycle? I cycle every animal in my collection. So, you know, all my meals, everything I'm raising for myself, everything gets cycled just as the adults do. Um, do you guys do that? Do you see a benefit to doing that? Because I feel it's a benefit to, to have the animal going through those cycles as they're growing. My feeling is this. I mean, you know, so here's the here's the the con of that is like, you know, my animals are going to be smaller. Um, yeah. as far as like when I'm going to sell babies, uh, you can right. see it. I mean, like when I go to Tinley, my animals are smaller, but I think my feeling is this in the wild, <laughs> you know, they're not going to be, they, they, I, I think that, how can I say this? I think that nature is very, uh, is, is, is very, is based on cycles. And just like with anything, even with us, you know, cycles are very important. I mean, you know, the weather's on a cycle, the moon's on a cycle, uh, you know, the, our daylight is on a cycle. All these things that happen, it's all on cycles. And <clears throat> it just seems that you're going to make for a better adult animal. I, th- I think, you know, if you start that cycle from, you know, I in agree. your room, I think once that animal is mature, I think it will be more into the rhythm and I don't even think you're really going to even have to, you know, I think they're just going to get it and they're just going to know. So as soon as like, I guess it goes back to your point about, you know, the rhythm of the room, like it's weird that you would have some animals that are in this rhythm and other animals that are in a different rhythm because you're trying to feed them to get them bigger, to sell them or whatever. You know what I mean? That's just my approach. And I am the exact opposite. So, you know, I <laughs> I will cool down every adult animal in my room. And some animals that are kind of on the cusp, especially if they're boys, um, if I'm breeding them or not. So, like, right this year, uh, uh, one of my females, one of my adult females is, like, officially retired. She's done. She had a very bad clutch last year that nearly killed her. So she's done. But I still am putting her down for winter and cycling her down because uh, that's just what we've always done. Um, but anything that is not breeding or is a baby is not going down for cycling. They have, uh, they're not in the stacks of cages that go down. Uh, they're in the rack systems that don't hold anything. They're on different computer systems, um, but they are in the same room unless it's uh colubrid or a bread lie. They're off in the side room where it gets colder. So, um, I don't know if it helps or hurts. Uh, I've not run into any problems where I have an animal that I've raised personally uh, with their first season. Usually if I have an animal that gets sick uh, when they go down for winter, uh, it is because I like bought it in August 
or, and am now putting it through my paces and it's not used to it. Um, and uh, so I haven't really hit any problems there, but I do see the benefit. I, and, uh, but I also said along the lines with what Eric said, uh, the positive that I have for it is that my babies are growing and, you know, I have larger yearlings or something to try to sell. And uh, uh, I can close the gap on getting my uh, animals that I'm trying to breed up to size. So I think you yeah. can do that. And I think that if if your goal is, I mean, it's not that you you can't, you know, keep feeding the babies and whatnot. And and, and people have had success with it, obviously, because, you know, people have done that for for a long time. I I think that it just depends on, like, what is your goal? So for me, my goal is to have – I'm trying to develop um, my collection to be – you know, a collection that's, you know, for me first, Mm -hmm. you know, um, and I'm not worried about the selling part of it as much. So if, but I understand like if that's, but you know, like for people that do this as a full-time job, then obviously they have to, you know what I mean? They have to, it's a different mindset. Yeah. It's just just two different ways of thinking. And, uh, I think both work, but I think for long-term health, in my opinion, I think it's, that's the best way to go. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I was I told know? a long time. I was I was told a long time ago by uh, Bird Breeder actually that the the best you're going to have your best collection when you breed the animals um, yourself because nobody's going to mm-hmm. sell the best animals, you know. So you're going to you're yep. going to be raising clients. So selling for me is actually a byproduct of me trying to create the ultimate collection of the species yes. I'm working with. You know what I mean? So. Yes. Um, I don't mind the extra steps in uh, smaller babies or a longer growth time or any of that kind of stuff. You know, I, I, if my goal is to breed bull and I, what better way than, you know, cycling babies to try to create that rhythm? Like Evan, um, I think, is going to be a force to reckon with when all his um, young bull and I are up to size because – you know, he's gotten all these when they were still red and everything and has raised all these animals in that cycle. So the rhythm in his room is is ingrained in these animals way more than, you know, me getting teenage and adult animals, you know. So he, he can right. have really good success with just because, you know, he's put the time into that. You know, Tracy used to get... Um, you know, different species. Uh, at one time, I think she had every species of python there was in her collection. And, you know, I would talk to her about getting imports and all that kind of stuff. And she would tell me, like, you know, the time you put into acclimating a wild caught and getting it into, you know, a cycle and everything to breed is way longer in most instances than, you know, getting a captive born baby and raising it up and uh and breeding it you know you're usually even though you have this instant adult that could give you eggs right away it's still a longer process to get that thing into the rhythm of the room and you know into a cycle than it is raising uh neo up and and breeding it you know for the first time so you know I, i see good things for evan down the road being that he is cycling those animals all the way through from red on up you know right yeah yeah, I, I think it definitely makes a difference uh, long term, you know. So, um, uh, so I, I, I mean, uh, let me ask you this, Keith, because you're working with Mulp. Do you find that um, 
pythons in general have the same basic needs? I mean, you know, I I, I would have said yes before I started working with them. You know, uh-huh. you know, I, I I've been on this kick with Bull and I lately that you know everybody always says the animal knows what's best for itself, but lately I've been on a kick saying I don't know if that's true anymore in captivity and in captive conditions. I don't know if that's true, and especially from an animal that comes from an extreme habitat. You know, if it's a pretty stable habitat, I can understand, you know, an animal picking and choosing its cool and its heat and this and that. But when you have an animal that's from a sustained, cooler environment, has it been programmed for so long to take advantage of heat when it's available um, that it's going to overindulge in that and actually harm itself as far as being productively viable because it's indulging in something that it's been programmed to take advantage of when it's available and they're just overindulging. So until Bull and I came along, I would say, yeah, you could treat a lot of the Python species the same and, and have the same results, you know, but mm-hmm. now my way of thinking is, is a lot different. Um, and I think a lot of the harder to breed species are, are for that reason. Um, you know, they're, obviously there's not, um, being productive in the normal routine that we're all so accustomed and been successful for us, you know. I mean, you bred a lot mm-hmm. of carpet pythons. You would think Bull and I would fall right into, you know, the same routine as that. And um, I can tell you, you know, they don't. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're going to use that same, yeah. you know. So, it, yeah, it's definitely, uh, these guys definitely been a huge learning. I've been working with, I mean, pythons my whole life, but seriously working with them for 30 years. And I haven't ever had a species that I wasn't confident in being able to read in what they needed as I am with these guys, you know? So they've shaken my whole thing with any, I have, I don't even want to admit this, but I have these womas I've been trying to breed forever. Right. Mm, I just found out the reason I'm not breeding them is they're all males. Yeah, that that oh. would be a hindrance. Yeah. Yeah. So All right. I, really I figured that out with them. my I figured that out with my Maclots pythons as well. So you know that is an issue. Um, yeah. So it's funny you bring up the the uh, thing with um, you know Bull and I basking uh, maybe too much to where it could be harmful to them because um, I was listening back to an episode we did again with Ryan Young and he was talking about when he bred tannin and um, he went in, you know, he was talking about how he, how he, how he did it and, you know, what he did. And, you know, at the end of it, he talked about um, the scrub complex, basically meaning including Bo and I uh, in there mm-hmm. as well. But uh, he said that for whatever reason, it is, uh, you know, in their DNA to be baskers. So they're basking, basking, basking. And, you know, he thinks that you know, some of the problems more so with scrubs in his experiences that, and he actually told you this, Owen was at the time you were trying to breed tannin bars. And he said, even if you think the female wants like, or needs that basking spot, you have to give it like a cycle to where it's not there all the time, because then, Mm -hmm. you know, she's just going to reabsorb those follicles and you're not going to have success. So um, it's funny you say that. Well, that was the year we got the slugs out of the tannin bars. So, you know, 
uh, clearly he was correct. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. well, what I've done with the bowl eye now is because if if I use a uh, UVB bulb, but it's it's just fluorescent, so it doesn't really emit a lot of heat, and it's out of the cage, and it um, goes through a wire. So I didn't want it to generate heat. But if that light is on, the, the animal's programmed that if there's light, there's heat, so it's trying to bask, you know. And I think that was an issue that I've taken out of the equation since last year. So now I have my lights timed with my heat panels that are coming on um, for a shorter duration in the morning and a short duration before nightfall. So now I tune those lights in with the basking spots so that the light comes on. They're like, Hey, the sun's out time to go bask. And then the radiant heat panel kicks on and we'll, uh, you know, we'll allow them to bask for a while, but I'm using ambient lighting with them now too. Um, because, you know, they were just constantly in that um, area when the lights are on trying to bask, you know, and that's not normal. Like Ari says they're out in, in the open possibly two hours, three hours tops a day. But if that light is on in that cage, my animals were all coiled up under it trying to bask, you know, for 9, 10, 12 hours a day, however long lights are on. So I think they definitely overindulge in, in certain things. So as a keeper, now you're trying to figure things to pull away like you know better than what the animal does. And, you know, that's where right. it gets, I think, tricky with these harder-to-breed species. And, you know, I think that's right. one of yeah. the things that we have to just work through. Right. Um, I forgot to mention this uh, when we were talking about taking all the animals down. One of the ways that I thought of um, – you know, not stunning the growth, so to speak, of uh, of the babies, is to cycle feed them as well. Yeah. Um, so, meaning that what I kind of do is preseason. You know, like in the summertime, it's like I'm kind of pounding my females with food and just kind of getting them ready. And and you know, uh, I I've done that with the babies as well. Um, just feeding them more often. Usually I kind of go like a two week window, but now it's like maybe five days or something like that, like every five days. And I think if you look at the year as a whole, probably um, the same amount of, uh, you know, nutrients uh, they're getting, but just in a, in a, in a time frame. So again, I'm getting that cycle, but you know, and again, probably the food is also a cycle as well. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. We'll see if it works. <laughs> yeah. It was funny. It was funny because I do cycle all my babies, but like, like I never had babies go off food because the temperatures were too cool. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, you know, like anything that I was raising to either, you know, eventually sell or raise for myself um, are going through the cycle of the room, but I'm still feeding them weekly. Now the adults, obviously, that are in breeding mode and everything else, they, their body's telling them to, to shut down the males, especially to look for mates and all that kind of stuff. But the babies, you know, never go through that cycle. Like they're constantly feeding. I never had them shut down because my nighttime temperatures were getting too cool. Have you guys found that the babies have shut down on you when you've put them through a cooling cycle? Uh, I yeah, not. I kind of have. Yeah, I mean, but like I said, I don't really cycle down my little guys. I just kept them plugged in and are feeding them throughout winter. Um, but I will say that out of all the animals that I have set down for cooling, I haven't really cycled them down too far because I'm gradually doing it. But even just two degrees, 
I'm already starting to see some animals kind of just be off put. Like I fed the little guys today and there were six or seven animals at the front of the cage looking for their rat. And then there were, you know, 20 or so who just slept through it. So I don't know. I guess mm. sometimes they do kind of just shut down. Yeah, I find that uh, once, like, for instance, oh, and you were here the other night. I threw that yeah. um, medium rat in with that jungle, and she didn't eat. Now, really? you know, this yeah. is – and this is the first signal to me to tell me that uh, it's it's getting to that time, you know. And at the – and just like – and she's not even my snake, you know what I mean? But, you know – I don't know. I, I don't know if that's just a, you know, it could be a fluke, I guess, you know, but, and I noticed that with my babies as well. And some of the, you know, most of my males they're they don't, they couldn't be bothered with food at this point. Um, you know, and, and now it's just a matter of, uh, you know, kind of letting them empty out their system. And, and before I drop them down, I don't even drop them down all that low. Uh, yeah. 70 is the lowest that I go. Um, yeah, I don't, but, I, I don't go down uh far but do you have the um obviously for the first thing is do you do you have the preseason like uh quick feed and then do you have them do you give them the time to empty out because like that's the other thing is that you know right now if any of the animals that i put down for winter are messing up with their cages is because they're either throwing their water bowl someplace or you know maybe one or two of them will pee but it's like very little needs to be done with those guys because I let them empty out pretty much all of uh, October. So do you guys let your guys empty out uh, or do you go the route of like small meals? Uh, I go the route of small meals. Um, okay. I also will provide for the animals that I take a lot cooler, like the bowl and I and uh, my Malukans and whatnot. Um, I provide them with an insulated hide box now. Okay. Um, okay. So, you know, they can collect, because if you just have this plastic hide box, right, and, and all that, the animal can't get in there, and all the work it did during the day to collect that heat, it's not allowed, um, it's not given the opportunity to, to keep that heat within itself if uh, the hide is just um, not providing right. the insulation that it would, like a wild animal would get down into a burrow or something and have all that insulation, you know, so that heat is mm-hmm. acting in their body like a generator. So I do provide insulated hides, um, I think, which helps that. So at my cooling at night, the animal can get in there and work to maintain um, temperature. Um, so that could be helping me also. But I do feed smaller meals um, than I do um, during the warmer cycles for sure. Yeah, I mean, I do, will... Do you... I'll feed when they come back up. I mean, when they when we start warming back up, I'll start feeding everybody this small meal. Um, and that's my first sign that I'm on the right track is when the girl doesn't want to eat. So, you know, she hasn't eaten, you know, since October, and she's warmed back up, and here's food, but she's totally ignoring it. So that, in my sense, is that we're on the right track. Um, yeah, see, see, my problem, Owen, is with the bull and I is I'm not getting my females to expend um, weight on creating eggs, eggs and, then, right. and, and all that where she's going off feed. So I'm in a difficult balance right now. When do I present large food and when do I present small food? Because I don't want them to get overweight. 
So right, right. now with the right. species that I'm not breeding right now, I'm tending to give smaller meals to maintain uh, what I feel is the proper body weight. Um, I don't know if you saw, Eric, I asked um, uh, Ari on his next trip over there if he could get us some, like, lengths with accurate weights to animals that aren't in a reproductive cycle. It would be interesting yes. to know what the weights of, of you know, wild bull and I are when they're not in a breeding cycle so we know if we're keeping them too lean or, or not. But, yeah, so without females producing eggs for me right now, I'm having a tough time finding that balance of, meal size and meal frequency to to maintain things the right way. It's easy when they're laying eggs because then you can say after the end, <laughs> I'm going to give them I'm going to give them some large meals. I'll get some weight put back on them and then back off or, or whatever you want to play. But when they're not laying the eggs and having that, you know, natural fasting time, um, it's hard to 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 play around with the food. I'm finding, you know. Right. Hmm. Interesting. Um, yeah. I, I want to circle back for a second. When you're using an insulated hide box, what are you using? Like a styrofoam cooler type of deal, or what? 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 Well, I actually I'm buying. Um, I'm well. I'm finding uh, inst- uh, styrofoam that doesn't have any uh, like formaldehyde or anything in like that. You know, I'm trying to find safe gotcha. styrofoam, but. They they have this, uh, there's a glue product specifically for styrofoam, and I'm actually just creating my own boxes, and I'm, I'm making a wood lid to go on the styro uh, box. I'll send you pictures of it, um, just to create weight and a friction fit on the top so the top can come off easy enough. And I'm just using a one-inch uh, thick foam, and then I'm actually, you know, packing that with uh, sphagnum, dried sphagnum moss, um, so it can get in there. It's nice and tight. It's built to the size of the adult animal that I'm using it in. And, um, boy, what a difference I've seen them in using these at night. Uh, before, when my lights would go off and it would be cool, the animals would be kind of roaming around, and then they may wind up in the nest box or they'd be in a tight ball coiled up in the corner. But now mm-hmm. I am definitely starting to see more of a rhythm of the animals using that box. The lights come on. They come out of the box. They bask the lights go off, they go back in the box. You know, I'm just definitely starting to be able to create that routine. Um, you know, and Ari was definitely uh, helpful in coming up with the idea of using these insulated boxes for the animals. You know, me, him, and Frederick are always bouncing ideas around. I'm like, man, what a great idea, you know. So I'm doing it on any of the species that I tend to keep cooler ambience, and it definitely I see an improvement in the overall condition of the animal, without a doubt, you know. Hmm. I should probably think about that for my diamonds and stuff. That would yeah. uh, probably be helpful. I like that for them. Yeah. <clears throat> so um, the other thing I was going to hit on is, um, well, is your are, are your Malukans up to size to where you're trying to breed yeah. them, or are you still growing yeah, them? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mine are. Yeah. Awesome. So, yeah, last year I got good copulation in the spring with them. Um, I got nothing mm-hmm. all winter, and then when I was warming up, you know, they – I started to finally get some locks. My female went dark. She went, like, black. She, you know, blew up on me. I thought for sure I had it with them, too. And <laughs> mess. But, um, you know, it was definitely a step further than the year previously. So, you know, hopefully I got my fingers crossed for this year. Yeah. That would be and, uh, a cool just, species. 
I just got a uh, really cool female, man. Uh, they're a cool species for sure. So are you following yeah. the same as uh, I'm the treating them like the bull and I, yeah. I'm treating them just really? like bull and I. They take the same temps. Um, you know, they've gone down into the 50s with no problem. Um, yeah, it's, they, they actually even seem maybe more adjusted to it than the bull and I, believe it or not. Um, yeah, they're doing great at, at these ambient temps and, and um cool nights and they're on the same cycle as the bull and I. Hmm. Okay. And I'm actually following that because, you know, Chad, um, he bred them a few years back and, you know, he was saying that he was just doing the exact same thing as the bull and I saw so him like, I didn't think they would be able to take it, you know, but they're doing fantastic with it. So I'm trying the same, same cycle. Huh. That's cool. Interesting. I mean, that, that, yeah, one that, of the... that, that's the trigger for them. Like there's, I remember they they do get very very dark. I guess the females do when they're yeah breeding extremely breeding. dark. She was like black. I mean, these were these. I got these uh, from Jim. I can't remember his last name. Starts with a K. He was big into the scrubs and then got into retics for a while. But this yeah. pair oh, was Caruso. phenomenal. Yes. Yeah. Um, this pair was phenomenal. I mean, you know, very high gold yellow color. And boy, that female last spring season, she got so black. And she shed it out after the first shed, um, I guess, when her hormones kind of straightened back out. But she never regained that real light color that she did, hmm. um, which is a good sign because, you know, like, you know, the Amazon Trebos and all that, the females get so black. My Sanzinia got so black when they were gravid. And, and, you know, I thought for sure I had it once I saw her get dark like that. And she went off feed and the whole nine yards. But, um, nothing, not even slugs. Do you think mm. that's because the female knows that she needs to, I don't know, absorb more heat or whatever, or bask more uh, while she's I'm grabbing? Thinking, I'm thinking maybe just the opposite. Maybe I maybe I gave them, because uh, I wasn't cutting back on their heat panels mm-hmm. last year like I am this year, and I'm wondering if I gave her too much heat too quick once I thought she was grabbing. Um, you know, that could have maybe triggered her not to ovulate. I don't know. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. That, yeah, that, that's a cool species for sure. Yeah, they're beautiful. Yeah. They're so cool. Yeah, you don't see they a lot of them. They got some range on them, though, don't they? Yeah. Oh, no, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, that's a problem. So. Yeah, when I was trying to take that picture, uh, what was it? last week or whatever uh yeah i got nailed <laughs> i got yeah. nailed it's like oh, yeah. shit wow they're, they're like an eight-foot amazon tree by the way they just coil up on you and just yeah. come right out to you, you know yeah I, I had a friend get nailed in the chin by one of his that uh we thought was a safe distance away and yeah. it turns out that's not true so you yeah. know that's um and they move very very quickly but they're awesome yeah. they are they're incredible now, so one of the things that I would say, oh, go ahead, Owen. I'm sorry. I was going to say, like, you know, when, when it comes down to this, like, obviously the darker color is the first sign that you're headed in the right direction. Do you guys have any other, like, triggers of looking at your pairs and going, like, aha, we're, we're doing the right thing, you know? It'd be awesome if everybody changed color, but, you know. <laughs> well, with Paul and I, Frederick's, Frederick does not feel comfortable until a female goes off feed. That okay. seems for him to be the deciding factor. Is when, because 
Bull and I are just so food-driven, you know, they're constantly looking for food. Now, my males go off feed, though. My two biggest males go off feed every year during the breeding season, which I thought was a great sign. And good old Frederick says his males always feed right through the season. So I don't know why my males shut down like that, like, you know, like a typical carpet male would or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. But Frederick's don't don't do that. They don't shut down. And, you know, obviously he's the gauge because he's the most successful at it. But, um, yeah, so I would say going off feed for any of the scrub pythons, you know, is, is a very good sign that you finally are in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah, you talk about signals, though, and that, that that you're headed in the right direction. So I'm I'm um, researching poplins, and I was talking to Rob, um, and he was, you know, so he had this species before. Um, but uh, one of the things in talking to some people is that, you know, when you're breeding carpets, as soon as you see them basking belly up, yeah. um, that's, that's like a, a good sign that you're headed in the right direction. But the thing with poplins is, is that um, apparently they do that very early, you know, and Casper hit on this a little bit, uh, on the mm-hmm. show when he was talking about it, but, um, you know, I just found that, you know, interesting, you know, so I, I, I kind of believe that that starts to make me think and why I asked that question earlier, do you think like, you know, your experience with all these different species of pythons, like, can you keep them all the same? But like, you know, if you kind of follow that same recipe, you know, you would never have success with them because they're doing that. I don't know, for whatever reason, they they're doing it but they're not they're not quite there and you would be uh yeah, you might pull the boy through early or something like that you yeah. know what i mean you, you yeah your breeding would be off you know putting that like you were saying keith earlier was putting the the male and the female at the right time and you know and trying to figure what that right time is you know well um, I, i'm actually keeping one pair together all the time now i i, I have this friend and i think i've told you guys about him before he, and he's got this educational place but he's got these large exhibits and he's he's bred animals that are very hard to breed he just takes he doesn't do anything all he does is take very good care of them he gives them very good diets and he keeps them together he's not doing it to breed or anything else but he's bleeding he has bred um black throat monitors and he's bred nice. you know i had a pair of matamatis here that's forever that I, I acclimated from the wild and i started to get some you know, breeding activity between them, but they were just taking too much room up in my snake room. I gave them to him, and after two years of him having them, we got eggs from the things, you know. He just he just takes really good care of his animals, but he keeps them together all the time. And, you know, some of these harder-to-breed species, there may be just this very small window of fertility that that male has to be in there, and they don't retain sperm like a blood python or some of the other mm-hmm. species that are, you know, easier to breed in captivity. Um, they may just have this very small window of fertility. And, uh, you know, having that male in there, even though they're together all the time, the the, the heart, uh, pheromones or whatever that may be released for that female turns that male on at the right time. I, you know, so I am actually trying to keep a pair of ball and I together, and I just separate them at feeding time. But um, I've noticed that the females use the nest box and dominate the male for the nest box and the male will lay coiled up outside of the nest box. So mm-hmm. I'm keeping a close eye on him because I don't want him to develop any kind of an illness because he's not getting in that insulated hide box um, mm-hmm. at night to to work the heat, you know. But, um, right. yeah, I think I don't think there's the same recipe for... 
a lot of the species, yes, I think you can keep a lot of stuff that are easier to breed in the same parameters with the feeding, the temperature, the light cycles, and all that, and you're going to be successful. But these more obscure species that are hard to breed, I mean, the Barkers have bred how many different species of pythons, but they never captive produce bull and I. Um, you know, there's so many keepers that are so good at keeping and breeding pythons that haven't bred bull and I, and I'm sure they're using the formula that's been good for them for so many years, and it's just not producing, you know, the snakes. So there's got to be these species that just don't fit into the criteria of mm, commonly bred species, you know? Right. Is there any thought on time frame? Like, yeah, I mean, maybe they're a different time of year, or um, you know, that's a really good question. I mean, Frederick's animals all seem to go. He he does the same, begins the cooling at the same time, and everything else. So, you know, I know that we discuss temperatures and we're doing things about the same time. Um, I don't know. That's a really good question. I don't know if they could be a random. I'm trying to think of like other species, like, you know, like every once in a while you would get that oddball clutch. Like you might get all your clutches in June, but then all of a sudden you get one clutch in October. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that would happen, but very randomly, nothing like, you know, so sporadically. I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I definitely think these guys are definitely more, um, I don't see a lot of breeding with mine until I get back into the warmer cycle. Um, uh-huh. There are other pythons. I would see a lot of breeding during my cooling cycle, you know. So these guys seem to be more on the hunt for a mate um, after the warm-up. Right. Gotcha. Okay. Hmm. Um, what about reintroductions? Because, I mean, the way I kind of trick them a few times is there's obviously tons of tricks when it comes to getting the male to have interest in the female, you know, shed it from another male, a scent thing, even combating. But you guys rely on reintroductions, or I know we're talking about keeping them in because the window might be very small. Like, you pull the male out like a day or two and then throw them back in, just to get that who are you 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 know what i've actually noticed works well for me is Mm -hmm. to take both animals out put them in separate tubs for like an hour or two clean Uh the cage and reintroduce them in the cage they're both excited and worked up and both are cruising the cage and not in a mundane bask hide bask hide bask hide they're more like you know excited and cruising the cage and I've gotten more breeding um, attempts and or locks by just taking the animals both out of that one cage, cleaning the cage and putting them both back in it after being in a a separate Mm. box for an hour that they were unused to. Um, I I can't tell you how many times I've brought breeder size pythons to a show to display and they'll lock up in a display case right at the show with hundreds of people walking by. Meanwhile, they're used to being in my snake room, not seeing people, not seeing this, but just all those different surroundings and all that was a stimulus to get that male. And the female accepting her. I had uh, a golden eye and a, a, a petite, I think it was, uh, in Maryland at a show, and Lana <laughs> pulls me over, and, and they're in this glass case copulating right there on the table with all these people basically tapping on the thing, you know. It's like, 
yeah. excitement or stimulus yeah. like that. So I, I definitely have been starting pairs that haven't been breeding for me in any of the pythons. Take them both out, put them back in the cage after a cleaning, and, and definitely have noticed that as stimulated uh, breeding attempts. Yes, I mean the, there was the old adage that we had um, that if your male's not doing anything, take him for a car ride. Yeah, like throw him in the bag, drive like I don't know someplace, go to like the bank, and then drive home, and then put him back in the cage. And yep. you know, the second you do that, he'll be first off shocked that he was driven around. Second, he will not know who the female that's been living in the cage with him for like three months is, and uh, he'll totally cruise around the cage. So um, I definitely am all for that. I've been doing this thing uh, with my white lips um, because they always would, if the female's in the cage already and then I put the male in, she bites him. So, and that'll sometimes lead to uh, wrapping and other stuff like that. So it's one of those things that, that if I need to do anything, both the animals come out and they're both put back in at the same time and it right. kind of is neutral territory. And uh, the mulch that is in their cage right now is actually a mixture of the mulch from both the male's cage and the female's cage. So it's kind of got both their scents on it right now. And uh, right. So far, I haven't had any problems this year with them trying to bite each other or, you know, uh, any kind of a unhappy situation with the two of them. So I'm actually kind of uh, excited, if not, you know, terrified still, that uh, I might actually get some luck out of them this year. So um, do you have you tried anything with, like, scents? Like, I will throw, right now with my olive python, I have a younger male olive that... Uh, if he soils his paper, I'll take a shred of it and throw it into my adult olive cages because that upsets my male olive and he uh, tries to copulate the female. Have you tried anything like that, like throwing sheds or uh, other scents into other cages? Well, I keep referring to the bull eye because that's the main python that I'm trying to work with now. So yeah, I got you. With the, with the bull and I, um, so the, the, the animals will, like, uh, it's almost like they mark the entrance of their hide, especially if you give them a stout, substantial hide like that, that's not going to slide around when they're in it or whatever. And they'll actually like put urates at the entrance of this hide box. So I try to leave remnants of that and clean up the heavy duty before I have to do a major cleaning to it. And um, the first thing when you uh, add a male to that cage is he'll cruise around the cage. And as soon as he hits the entrance of that, he is like tongue flicking all around that entranceway and then immediately goes into the nest box to investigate. Um, so I think those scent markers, I think that's something that maybe Bo and I do um, in the wild around their burrows to, you know, Ari said he's noticed it, you know, very obviously that they leave these markers outside of their entranceways. In other words, to say, hey, I'm in here if you want to breed or, hey, this is my territory, stay away. But I definitely notice um, if, I leave, if I don't clean the hide spotless and I leave, you know, little trace amounts of the female scent in there, um, that's a huge stimulus, uh, stimulus to the males. But luckily with Bo and I, um, you don't need a lot of uh, encouragement, like by adding other males or other male sheds or anything like that. It seems like the female's cues are enough to to stimulate um yeah breeding attempts for sure awesome so uh 
when it comes to, uh, you know, the temperatures you're dropping to, uh, what are you trying to let everybody get down to? I mean, uh, how far are you taking the bull and iron if you, and everything else? Yeah. Well, so I run ambient on like everything, but I am doing rating heat panels on the bowl and I, but only per, to provide a short basking, but otherwise it's ambient. So my thinking with those guys now is not so much that I have to get them extremely cool because Casper, when he was still working with them too, and I were both, I mean, I was bringing my animals down to like 48, 49 degrees for a short duration at night and they were handling it and everything else, but I think I was actually sending them more into survival mode than uh, reproductive mode by going that mm. extreme. So I'm actually now more in the mindset of just keeping them overall cooler. Um, okay. I don't think I don't think I will go below 62. I don't think you. I mean, I don't know because I haven't done it, but I don't think you need to go into the 50s with them. Um, I think if I get them down to like 62 at night, I'll feel comfortable. I think one of the main problems is, is just giving them the opportunity. They're masters at collecting heat. So if you give them too much heat, they're, they're, um, making great use of it, you know? So I'm just overall keeping the animals a lot cooler in general. Like my ambient highs during the day are 71 right now. Um, And I don't plan on going, like I say, below 62 at night, but they're not accessible to even 80 degrees, even when the basking is on for the duration it's on. I don't think um, I've shot it and it's like 79, just about 80 degrees in the basking area. So I think just the overall coolness is going to be more helpful to me than because look at Quetzal did him down in coast, uh, Costa Rica, right? So how yeah. cold was he really getting him at night? I don't know. Uh, exactly. So it's kind of one of those things. And uh, I, I mean, are you, you're in the midst of your cool down right now. When did you start that? Um, I'm just kind of letting the room do its thing. You know, I do have access to open the window um, mm. and just maintain that for a little bit to, to knock it down to, whatever the outside temperature is, you know, um, it just requires diligence for me to keep going and checking the room. So it's not getting too cold. Um, but I could bring it down to really whatever I want. So right now I haven't been opening that window. I've just been letting the room cause it was in the summer ambient was like, you know, 74 to 76. So now it's like, you know, 69 to 71 ambient during the day and then at night right now i've gone down to like 65 67 so i'm just wow. kind of letting the room do its thing right now you know and, and and i'm gonna see how it goes as as we get cooler outside i'm just gonna watch the room and see what it's doing but i'm not gonna try to shock them with those real cold nights like i i've done in the past because i've done it and it hasn't really gotten me anywhere you know so now i'm just trying a more subtle approach to the temperatures Right. So now I imagine you're kind of like me, though. And as we get into the winter season, you know, if I hear that there's a snowstorm coming, I'll get home as soon as I can. I'll pull males and like shove them in like sweater boxes for an hour or two. And then once the storm hits, everybody goes back into the cages and you you start seeing massive breeding activity and stuff like that. Will you kind of try to 
uh, I don't know, set up for success if you hear a winter storms coming through? Yeah, you know, the problem for me is it seems like if you have a a good male, he's going to breathe, right? He's going to try no matter what. Yeah, he doesn't care. He's going to breathe. So I'm more concerned with trying to get that female to be receptive and, um, you know, in the right state of mind because the male getting the breathe doesn't seem to be an issue. So... Uh, I don't notice that the storm's helping me a lot with these guys. You know, I, I, I right. haven't noticed it, you know, I haven't, I haven't, because they haven't need that stimulus yet. You know, they're just, they're ready to go pretty much all the time. Now, keeping that pair together, I have noticed that um, the male calms way down after, you know, his initial shock of trying to breathe the female all the time, he calms down. Right. So now when I see him actually trying to breed her, I get more excited and I'm trying to figure out what was the cue in that room. Was there a storm outside? Was there a dip in temperature? Did the lights not come on or what was it that stimulated him at that time to try breeding? So it's another reason why I'm keeping a pair together to try to see when they are used to each other, what was the trigger that got that male to try breeding at that time, you know, and then maybe I can emphasize whatever that trigger was. Yeah. So, um, aside from the bull and I, is there anybody, is there any other species in your collection that's really kind of pulling your hair out right now? Uh, the Malukans. <laughs> okay. So, basically, pretty much those two, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you know, I had a lot of species that, so I went through the phase of wanting to breed, and and the blood pythons were just like, Bull and I at one time. I mean, mm-hmm. it was very hard to acclimate and get them to breed and everything else. But once you're successful at breeding them, then you look into, you know, breeding for different colors or patterns or this or that. So once I went through with the blood pythons and I thought I went as far as I could with them and wanted to slow down a bit from such a large collection and move them out, I wanted to work with, you know, tough to breed species to see if I could. So I kind of set myself up with the pythons just to, to work with really tough to breed species. So, you know, I got my wish. <laughs> yeah, that, you did that. <laughs> I mean, and, and it's, uh, it's cool that you mentioned the, the, the boas as well. So I know you had uh, some success with the Amazon tree boas uh, the, this past year. And then did yeah. you get Tanzania this year or last year? Uh, no, I, I didn't. Uh, I haven't got. I, I'm really looking for the greens. I'm, I'm, right. you know, I'm trying to get them in from Europe, but it's just impossible to do. You know, there's no way. I tried talking to a lot of different people with import um, abilities, and it's just impossible to get them in. So I'm just. I, I'm really hooked on. Um, on I'm definitely building a little army of them, but the Amazons I really like, and I have annulated now, and um, yeah, I have the Madagascar ground boas now, and I have some Argentine boas, so, you know, I'm definitely geared for boas more than pythons right now, so, mm-hmm. you know, my main focus will always be the bull and I right now, and, and I see myself focusing on emeralds, but like you say, you know, I had a rhythm, I had a collection, and I gave that all up in 2013. And so I'm really building a whole new collection now and starting actually over from scratch because 
every snake I had during that time is gone now in 2013. So I'm actually building my collection back up and getting animals up to size that I'm raising in my cycles and, um, you know, starting all over again. So it definitely was a refreshing um, shot in the arm I think I needed in the hobby. Um, it's like all new again, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I would say that. It's taken on some you did take a big bite of the I'm going to take on the challenging ones, Apple. I mean, you know, <laughs> I don't think it gets any worse than, you know, Bull and I. So there you go. More yeah. power to you. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the Amazons are fun. Um, they're fantastic, uh, you know, a little bit easier to breed, obviously. And, um, you know, you get an eclectic uh, assortment of bees out of them. So, you know, they satisfy uh achievement while you're trying to work on these harder to breed species. So mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's right. like you're not producing you're not producing nothing. You still got the Amazon tree boa baby. So there you go. Always something to play with, right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Keith, what's your thoughts on um you know, you hear a lot of people talk about um, you know, females and once they're, you know, building follicles or when they ovulate, like what do you think is the right temperature for that female? Some people say that we keep them too hot. That's why you have slugs. You know, other people, they add heat to the female once she ovulates. Do you have any thoughts? You know, I think it's very species specific because, again, when, you know, I was doing um, um, bloods and and Borneos and and Sumatran short tails, um, again, I was at ambient, you know, and my ambient was 79, 80 degrees. And that's, that's what the females had to work with. And, you know, I had great. Um, fertility and great hatch rates with all my clutches. I didn't see any uh, abnormal issues. So, I mean, 80 degrees was working fantastic for those animals. Uh, Burmese pythons, you know, I was breeding them in retics and everything else. Again, ambient, no basking spots, no extra heat, and, you know, everything was at 80, 81 degrees. Um, you know, all the python species, actually. Um even uh, the Sanzinia, the green Sanzinia and the, and the mandarin Sanzinia, when I bred those, uh, again, they were at ambient temperatures. And, I mean, the females would have um, a fairly large cage, and, you know, you think you would find them towards the warm side at 82 degrees, and they were all over that cage. I didn't find them basking whatsoever. Um, so I, I don't know. Like, these guys... Uh, I've done fine with my whole career at ambient temperatures of 80, 81 degrees through the whole gestation of the pythons. What made you go in the route of doing the ambient temps? Um, That's a good question. I don't know why I started that so many years ago, but I just, um, it started, you know, Burmese pythons were what everybody cut their teeth on back in the day. Everybody was breeding Burmese pythons and, I probably had like 20 uh, breeder Burmese pythons and I just had them in six foot cages in the room. And, um, and uh, yeah, that was, that was interesting. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah. It was a whole different thing from working for men to like Amazon tree bones, boy. Um, But yeah, I just set them with a, a radiant uh, heater in there and literally no thermostat. I mean, I would uh, just adjust the dial on that at the time and uh, ambient temp and no basking and you get your 35, 40 eggs and everybody would be good and hatch and no issues with it. So I think I just continued it 
when I got into tougher to breed species, you know, because it was working for me, I was confident with it. And, uh, and, you know, I see guys like my, my, even my emeralds right now, I have no basking on them. Um, and the young ones and everything, they're going down to 72 at night, um, and up to 80, 79 during the day. And they're all eating perfectly and defecating perfectly and drinking and shedding perfectly and no, basking spots where everybody else I see they have all these basking spots and radiant heat panels and whatever. I'm like, oh my God, I'm doing everything wrong, but the snakes are thriving. So, you know, I'm sticking with what's been successful for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I tried that a long time ago and I, I didn't have success with it. And I really, I mean, it, in theory, it really makes sense to me. You know, we talked to Terry Phillip about it and obviously he got it from uh, the Barkers because I believe that's what they do if I'm not mistaken. And, yeah, um, and Tracy's probably could be an influence for me because, you know, I used to, you know, when Tracy and Dave were in Maryland, we all have a lot more contact with them than I do nowadays, but that could have been an influence for me of going that route myself, you know? Mm-hmm. Hmm. But now Matt yeah. is saying that he's not really thrilled with the results he's getting with Ambien right now also, right? Yeah, he was just saying that the other night. He, he changed back because he kind of did what I did. I don't know. Like, I think I think one of the mistakes that I did is I just kind of like changed it. You know what I mean? And I think they got stressed out, and I think that's how oh, why I had problems. You know, I I don't think you can just change it. And I think it's no. like a whole system. It's not just you know you can't feed big meals if you're well. I don't know. Maybe Dad, did you feed big meals when you were doing ambient? Especially, you know, to the blood and all, but I mean, you know, the 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 burns and all the bigger stuff back then too. It was definitely large meals and no issues huh. whatsoever. Hmm. Okay, see, there you go. I stand corrected. You know, I always thought but, that like if you were going to have bigger meals, that you know, you'd have to provide that basking spot. Yeah, but I also, um, I also, like I say, you know, I raised all my animals all the time in that environment, you know what I mean? So they were conditioned mm-hmm. from day one um, being cycled at these different temperatures and ambient. And, you know, I'm sure they developed the means to to capitalize on, on that environment, you know? Sure. Absolutely. Okay. So but I do, did... but I do have, I'm thinking, you know, out loud here, but I do have wild caught uh, from Harlan, wild caught adult, uh, emeralds that he acclimated that are thriving in my ambient temperatures right now, you know? So, and Bill Hughes though, and, and all, you know, I, I see him and he's a very successful breeder of them and he's using radiant heat panels on, on his animals. So I don't know. I'll see when my stuff all gets up to five if I start producing those also and don't have any issues and I can say I'm successful with it right now. Maintenance wise, I'm very successful with it. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. What about uh, as far, I mean, were you, when you would breed, I mean, even if we'll talk bloods, but like palpating females, was that something that you were, uh, that you did regularly or? Yeah, you know, I, I did this, I, I call it the hang test for those guys when, you know, they get that large, hard, full bodied look. Um, I would take the female like mid body and, you know, support her. So I'm not putting undue pressure on her, but I'd let the back half of her hang and you could tell instantly by the shape 
and density of that abdomen when the females were ovulating. Um, I always called it the hang test, you know, and it was easy with blood being a, a short squatty python. Um, but now yeah. I, I, I don't get overly concerned with it. Um, you know, I have no control over what they're going to do, what they're going to do. So I'm more watch for the behaviors of it. And I, I don't have very, very, seem like very sensitive hands. A lot of people, I don't know if you guys are good at it, but a lot of people that can, uh, you know, different pythons and bowers bite, um, bring the fingers past the awake and actually feel the little pop of the candy honey can't even feel that. I don't know how people are. I see people at a very accurate but I've never been good at popping females other than doing that but I could never feel it as a man. Are you able to feel that? Because I can't feel I can't feel anything, and I've never been able to palpate my females. Like, you know, uh, I second guess everything, and then Eric will come over and be like, why are you even questioning this female? She's huge. Like, her scales are popping. You're insane. So... I've been able to feel anything, so I've never been able to feel that. Would you see that in the bloods, the scale separation when she ovulated? Keith? Uh oh. Keith? Did we lose him? You there? I'm here. Can you hear me? Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh the females, yeah, they, they they get like rock hard down there. I mean you you instantly I would cup my hand on the bottom. You didn't have to feel in any individual eggs or anything like that. You could just feel that solid mass and it was just instantaneously you knew, you know, they they yeah, took. They it was very easy to see. But then the long slender pythons I've always had a very tough time. Um, catching that either ovulation or palpating eggs or any of that kind of stuff. And other people will tell me, like, it's just a matter of fact. I'm like, man, how the hell are they doing it? Because I can't, you know, I've never been able to feel. I've wet my fingers. I've dried my fingers. I've used one finger. I've used all my fingers. I can't, I can't seem to feel it. So. You know, uh, one trick is, is that I've seen people do, they take a paper towel because um, when the female, uh, this is, especially with, uh, you know, more slender snakes, scrubs, carpets, stuff like that. Um, because I guess the oils on your hand, the snake has a, they don't go as smoothly through your, through your hand. So Mm -hmm. if you kind of like open up the cage and let her kind of crawl back into the cage, but if you put a paper towel in the underneath, um, sometimes you can get a better feel because she's, she's not as tense, I guess, maybe that's what it is. That's, you know what I mean? So. Hmm. Just a little tip. Yeah, yeah, I'll have to try that. The blood, the blood pythons, it was just so easy. Like I said, I mean, they literally yeah. feel rock hard. You know, it's like there's just no denying it. Right. Uh, Keith, have you ever thought about um, springing and getting yourself an ultrasound for the bull and eye or something like that? I have, you know, but I, I'm thinking it's just going to be another factor that's driving me nuts, you know, because this, <laughs> this, this, they're going to they're going to do what they're going to do, you know what I mean? And if I see them doing what's, you know, what am I? I I, I don't know. Yeah. I guess I could say, hey, I'm in the right path, but I I can see the females definitely swell and build. I can't feel anything but I can definitely see that swelling and building in the females when I know that they're building follicles. Um, you know, it's just that look that they get. I can see that happening. 
it's just after that, um, they'll maintain that for a little while, and then it just, you know, they go back down to normal. Hmm. So I've thought about it, but like I said, I think it's just going to be another thing that's, you know, driving me nuts. So, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like Robin from Pro uh, Pro Exotics, right, he said he could get his females to 40 millimeters, and uh, that's as far as he could ever get them to go. So he knows that they went that far, you know, by ultrasounding them. But, Damn. Uh, All right. So what do you guys think um... – I mean, what are your thoughts on why we get slugs? Does anybody want to take a shot at that? <laughs> uh, either sperm didn't find the egg or female didn't have enough nutrients to finish the egg process. I mean, a lot of times if if it's a slug, it's, you know, uh, I find if a lot of times if you get a slug, it's either some contributing factor of either the age of one of the animals in the pair um, or, you know, it's never the perfect male and the perfect female. They usually like of the right age and it's their like third year breeding. They're usually turning out a bunch of eggs and maybe like one or two slugs. If you have a slug out, it's because the female was either too young. The male was too young. They weren't sexually mature. It, it's one of those kind of factors, but you know, I, that's what I would put my money on. Yeah, I never considered the fact that the female didn't have the proper nutrients, but that's a good point. Um, yeah. In my my thought always was only because it was proven to me with blood pythons um, that I've had slug problems when temperatures were too warm. Um, I think Matt has actually experienced that also, and possibly Lon um, may have given me some feedback that he has experienced that also, but... Um, I know for a fact, like I say, when I was doing the monitors, um, my temperatures in the room that the bloods that I had at the time were in would get um, extremely warm during the day because of all the basking I was uh, providing for the dwarf monitors. And those years were my worst years in production with blood pythons. I just got slugs after slugs after slugs. I got rid of the monitors and, you know, everything went back to, you know, perfect, beautiful little clutches. So I know too warm of temperatures uh, for blood pythons without a doubt can cause a slugging problem. Yeah, I mean, I said the nutritional thing because I have females that lay 32 perfect eggs, and then the 33rd and 34th egg are slugs. So I imagine after a while she's stretched pretty thin, either with just the sperm to fertilize these eggs or the nutrients to make viable eggs. So I don't well, know. that was actually kind of what led me to ask Ari about the water. Yeah. Um, because I was wondering if the females aren't selling the eggs. They're they're building follicles and everything, but they're not going to ovulation and then selling the eggs because they're lacking certain nutrients. And everybody thinks of food and gut loading. Um, those animals, but maybe maybe it is in the in the water that the bull and I are drinking. And the females lacking those nutrients to to continue the process, so right. that's why I was asking Ari if he could do some uh, research on the water over there and see what mm-hmm. it is. Now, um, my buddy, I don't know if you guys know Jeff Howell, but he is uh, one of the smartest guys I know. I mean, um, you know, to hear him talk, I'd have to ask him to decipher it like ten times before I finally get <laughs> to understand what he's saying. You know, but I, right. I. 
brought it up to him and he, you know, he was thinking anything's possible, but he didn't know if they would be able to actually, because Bull and I love to drink water. Like when they drink, they drink their bowl dry, you know? So I was telling him that. And he's like, usually when they do that, it, uh, an animal's trying to actually flush items out of its system, not items. Cause my thought was perhaps if they're such big drinkers like this in the wild, if they're drinking a lot of this water that has a certain nutrient in it, you know, that's why their bodies have a lot of it in it and continue the process to the egg development. Um, so I don't know. That's, you know, just one path that I'm looking at with that. So that was interesting that when you said that about showing the egg, I was like, oh. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that was one of my thoughts with um, Halma hair scrubs. You know, my first initial go around with them, um, what I did was I got – it was like it's like a powder almost, but they make it for lorikeets. Um, it's like okay. a, it's like fruit. So in the wild, and again, there's such limited information on Halmahara scrub pythons that you know most of the information came from, or most of the pictures that you see came from, uh, you know, I guess they're called what would you call people birders? Is that what the people that go and look at birds in the wild? Is that, is that the technical yeah, name for yeah. them? I guess that is. So they, they would catch these pictures of these snakes and they had a few of Halma Harris and they're eating fruit bats. So is there something that, you know, that they're not getting um, some kind of vitamin or some kind of something that, you know, you know what I mean? Like yeah. if, if that's their diet, are they missing something? So, you know, I would supplement, but obviously you have to watch when you're, when you're doing that stuff, because, you know, you can give them something that's, that could be, uh, you know, Not lethal, <laughs> you yeah. know, uh, if you give them too much, but I don't know. Have you thought about anything as far as that goes when it comes to bowling? I is, have you guys talked about yeah. anything? Yeah. Last year I, uh, supplemented the females, and the males um, during breeding trials, um, not for the whole year. I didn't want to overdose them. So, um, you know, I was gut loading the feeder rodents um, to them uh, just with vitamin supplement. And I was actually using um, also added, uh, believe it or not, I was going back to my bird days and with uh, egg laying mash um, because it has a lot of calcium and different vitamins to stimulate birds to produce eggs, you know. So uh-huh. I was actually uh, using um, some of that laying mash and gut loading the uh, the uh, rats before I was feeding to the snakes. And, you know, I did notice my females, you know, definitely in a better cycle last year, but I don't know if I've noticed anything positive enough to keep pursuing it um, as far as right. I was concerned. Gotcha. What about probiotics? Yeah, it's funny. I was just talking to Ian about that tonight, you know, because, you know, the Brigard syndrome with uh, emerald tree bows is always an issue with guys that keep emeralds. And, you know, once you clean the snake out, you've killed every good bacteria in them also. So a lot of guys would go to probiotics. Um, And that's kind of Ian's field, knowing about that kind of stuff. And, you know, his thoughts are that, uh, the probiotics that are out there aren't really going to uh, reseed a reptile um, in a proper way that they're beneficial to even try using. I think I would, again, go back to my bird 
um, heritage uh, with parrots that we used to breed and we used to take the baby chicks that were hand rearing and actually take a little fecal matter from the adult healthy birds and mix it into their food and uh, feed them that way. And, you know, I think that would probably be a, if I had to uh, clean an animal out and get um, bacteria back into it, I think I would go that route over the probiotics that are out there. Hmm. Interesting. All right. Now, this topic is uh, is one that's probably uh, Bull and I, you know, and Scrubs, the reabsorbing. I mean, <laughs> what, what do, you, do you have thoughts? I mean, of why that's going, going on? I'm going by other keepers that have gotten a little further than I have uh, success-wise mm-hmm. with them. And, again, it's it, it all seems to stem from temperature with a lot of guys will definitely believe that, you know, they tried warming them up too soon. Um, it's kind of like what we were talking about with the lack of a, a certain nutrient, though. You know, I, I'm, I'm trying to keep all possibilities out there, but the only two things mm-hmm. that can come into my mind are um, either the male was not fertile because, he's so proficient at collecting heat and the heat is damaging the sperm from being viable. So when Tom down in Florida bred his male to the female carpet, it was interesting in the fact, you know, I don't like the hybrid part of it, but I do like the fact that he proved that his male was a fertile male by doing that. So I don't know if we're not getting viable sperm from our males. Are we warming the females, giving them too much heat so they're reabsorbing? which, you know, is hard to figure out when the timing of that would be just right. But I know it is a concern uh, for Frederick when to start applying the heat. And his, um, I believe what he told me was when, uh, you know, when the female's off feed, he feels confident that things are where they need to be. And that's when he can start giving them more of a basking site. And, And like Owen said, the nutrients, those would be the three, things that I would think would trigger the female to reabsorb and not continue the process. Right. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, what do you think? Okay. Uh, I think reabsorption happens for a ton of reasons. It's one of those, like, I don't, if, if she doesn't feel that she can take the clutch the full way, she'll reabsorb. So what you're saying is that it, you know, it, about the nutrient thing, it, that would be my first bet. If she doesn't have something that she absolutely feels she needs in the time frame uh, to bring these eggs to the full term, uh, I think she'll reabsorb or slug out. So I think it's just, it just ha- goes hand in hand with slugging out. So Yeah, so, so breeding is supposed to be that animals breed to give their offspring the best chance at survival, right? So if you look at it right. at that aspect, there's got to be something there that's telling this female it's not a good time to bring babies in the world because they have a poor chance at a survival. So don't waste the energy to do it because right. the success ratio for the babies is going to be very slim. So trying to figure out what that is to stimulate that female to say, okay, times are good now. Now it's time to make the babies. That's basically the basic thought pattern you should have when you're trying to formulate a 
successful uh, program for a species, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So here's two things that pop into my head. I don't know. Like one thing that uh, I've always thought was bowling eye. Uh, I think this goes back to an episode we did with uh, Sean Christian. And one of the things that he pointed out was, you know, in the wild, they're going, you know, they're, they're going into these underground nests and, um, you know, have you tried anything as far as, um, you know, somehow, uh, mimicking that as far as like, you know, real dark box with like really packed in. Yeah. The insulated box I think is the closest, uh, simulation to that I can create because, um, it does provide that insulating factor. So if the ambient is outside, now you have a snake that's 20 degree up to 20 degrees warmer than the ambient um, going into that nest box and working in, in that nest box overnight to maintain a tolerable um, temperature. So, yeah, I think doing these heavy insulated nest boxes, I think Doug Taylor, too, when he got the slugs that year, I think one of the only things he changed that year was going to an insulated nest box. And um, I don't know what his thought process was to go to that insulated nest box, but maybe that was the trigger in itself right there to get him that far that year, you know? So, yeah, Mm -hmm. nest nest box is uh, definitely a huge thing for me trying to uh, come up with the right formula. Now, Frederick goes and throws that big old monkey wrench of his into the machine again <laughs> because I believe that one year, the first year that he bred him, he didn't even have a high box in with the female until he felt she was about ready to lay eggs. Um, and the one female, I think, one year just laid under a piece of cork bark. So, hmm. <laughs> you know. All right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um. Uh, we did get a question. Um, it says, uh, what are your thoughts on uh, if they uh, reabsorb, reabsorb if they don't get enough food beforehand? Well, I think the whole follicle process of building follicles is all stems from the food process. So I would think um, that if you're at the point of them building follicles, you've done a good job with your feeding regime up to that point. Um, I know Frederick also doesn't like to overdo it with food during that whole process. He keeps it kind of backed off a little bit. Last year I did try hitting the females hard with very small meals but very frequent meals um, when I felt that they had built follicles to try to push them to um, the next level. Um, but I, you know, obviously I wasn't successful with that. So Frederick does keep the food, um, a little bit leaner during that process. Um, so I don't know what impact that has on it. Cause I, we've, we tried both stimuli there, you know? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Hmm. That's, uh. yeah. William, uh, is talking about, he had that same thing with Walma. Um, where she builds and she builds and she looks like she's uh, it's a full blown ovulation and then nothing. I wonder, you know, I'm sure you've talked to Casper about this, but do you have any thoughts as far as like what he was talking about when he was breeding the poplins where, 
you know, um, timing the was timing was off, like you know, like, yeah. because you, when you thought that she was in this, you know, stage where she's ovulating and building and, you know, or building and ovulating, she's not, it's in the early stages at that point. So like if you were, you know, at the heat or if you change it at that point, because you think that she's on the way, um, that that could screw it up. Have you, have you thought about anything as far as that goes? Yeah, I think that's why my cycling now is less dramatic and more stabilized, just an overall, like, I, I, I'm i not going to have a dramatic cycle this year. I'm just overall cooler in general. You know what I mean? Gotcha. Okay. Um, so, yeah, that's that's kind of what's drew me to, to be where I'm at with them right now. Now, I'm doing a light cycle. Um, hoping that that will be maybe the trigger more than temperatures, but I've just overall backed way down on, on the temperatures and giving them, they're just too damn good at collecting heat, you know, so I'm trying mm-hmm. to make it so they have to really work to collect heat, if if that makes sense. Um, right. You know, I'm trying to make them work for their, their keep like, the, you know, Mother Nature does. So I'm hoping that um, more stable but cooler environment will be what keeps them going through the cycle. Because like I was saying before, I I almost feel like sometimes I was driving them more into survival mode and what female is going to want to bring offspring into an environment that is that critically harsh. Yeah, that they can't survive in. Yeah. Right. So if I keep them more stable, just overall cooler, um, I think that's the way I'm going to try to keep the room and build that rhythm over the next couple of years. It may not happen this year, but I think that's the plan I'm going to stick with with these guys. Gotcha. That makes sense. Um, I don't know, Owen, we're running out of time. Is there anything on the list left that you want to hit on that maybe... uh... Uh, My... The only one would be, um, have either of you ever experienced anything with, uh, let's say egg binding, something that, you know, yes. uh, that <laughs> yes. like, and what, what do you do with that? Call Owen. Like, we've talked about, we've talked about, <laughs> well, obviously, but we've talked about all the things that are successful. Like, you know, how, how you set up eggs, how do you do this, that, and the other thing, but what are some of the things that have gone wrong and how have you fixed them? I'll let you go. For me, okay, for me, for the worst species I had for egg binding was Burmese pythons. Really? And yeah, and I think it was not providing the females with enough water and keeping them very hydrated during that process. Um, I think I should have, you know, kept access to them. Um, with uh, a bigger water vessel or something just so that they was constantly in their face, constantly reminding them to drink. Um, And what I did to correct that, um, if it did happen, was I actually used to aspirate the eggs closest to the vent through the side of the female with just a large needle. I'd actually go through the side of the snake into the thing and draw out as much yolk because I couldn't try to collapse that egg. And usually if I could get that egg to pass, it would continue the process and the female would, uh, you know, lay the clutch. And it was weird because once they got egg bound like that, I never 
the clutches they would look viable and everything else, but yeah. there's definitely a time frame that they'll stay inside, and when they come out, they still I had zero hatch rate on those eggs. Yeah. But I, I, I think it was due to, to hydration. I don't think I ever worked out the kinks on, you know, just having a water bowl in there always isn't just the key. You know, I've talked about that before. It's placement of the bowl and adding, you know, fresh water daily just to stimulate them to drink or whatever. Um, but I think uh, I was lacking on keeping them really popular, uh, properly hydrated, and that was the concern, the problem for me with them. Yeah, yeah. I could see that. So. I would tend Eric. to agree with that. Yeah, I I think that's the you know I had a coastal carpet that was egg bound and I also had a uh, uh, well actually there were two coastals the one Owen is the one that you palpated out that caramel girl for well for her I think she would might have been on the small side right um, would have been my thoughts I I probably bred her a little too early um, or she didn't have what? enough size you know what I mean and and I you know unfortunately she's okay. I don't know. Maybe I'll try to breed her again at some point. But um, I think the uh, the other coastal girl I had, I, I think it was hydration, was uh, yeah. where I screwed up. You know, so it's very I important, mean, in my opinion, <laughs> especially with uh, your females going into breeding season. Yeah, I, I've had egg bound. I've had two carpets egg bind. Uh, one that passed um, uh, because the result of the egg binding because I didn't check it. I didn't find it soon enough. I thought she was, you know, whatever. Um, but, and that was early on in my career. Um, but the other one that did egg bind, I ended up taking to the vet and they gave her uh, the uh, Pitocin to, like, I guess, to induce labor and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. And she couldn't get the first egg out. So we're driving home from the vet, and she's got it most of the way out, but that's it. She just keeps pushing. So when we got home, I actually took, like Keith said, a needle and kind of just popped, like stuck the egg right there, um, and it was still partially coming out of her, and it drained it just enough for her to get it out, and it was the size of, like, a blackhead egg. Like, it was just a big freaking egg, um, and all the other eggs that followed it were all slugs. So... Um, not, but that would be the one thing I would be worried about is, uh, egg binding and things like that. Uh, the other small things that we've talked about, you know, our eyes during breeding season and, uh, other stuff like that, uh, I'm not getting too concerned about, but the other thing would be, uh, Keith, uh, do you cut your eggs or do you let them hatch on their own? Um, I definitely, uh, did a lot of cutting in my day, but not to the extreme that you see the Charlie Manson videos on (laughs) YouTube and stuff. You're not distracting the baby. Yeah, I got you. (laughs) The the, the retic guys, man, I I mean, they're literally holding the embryo in their hand without no shell on it, you know, and it's still in the sack. It's like, oh, my God. Uh, but um, definitely, you know, I, I definitely would put a, a slice. Once one baby pipped, I would definitely always uh, put a slice in. Um, and I don't know how good that is. You know, natural selection is maybe a good thing because you don't want to, you know, we talked about this in a blood python forum, I believe, you know, do, are, are you promoting genetic deficiencies by helping weak babies come out of the egg that 
you know, maybe weren't supposed to make it. I don't know. I, I kind of wrestle with that a little bit. But I think Mother Nature knows best in, in that situation. But I, I do admit that I always would put a slit in all the eggs um, once the first baby pip. Yeah, uh, I do too. So. Yeah, I follow the same. Yep, I do the same. Um, you know, I also had an experience where uh, I'll just share this for people that may have not heard this in the past is um, I I had uh, one of them leave the egg too early and uh, they died. Um, yeah. So I talked to yeah, Rob. I, you had that too? I've had that too. And I call it like a forced hatch. It's almost... I think I yeah. caused that situation by cutting a flap in it to peel it back to take a look inside, you know, and and I think you just force the hatch too early that way. I, you, you could also force the hatch where the babies come out, and they weren't really ready to come out, but the, the, all the movement and stimulation they think is like other snakes that have hatched crawling over their eggs, and I think that definitely st- stimulates the, uh, you know, animals that are a little bit behind to slit the egg and come out. So when you're doing all that and you're almost forcing them to come out a day or two early, I definitely notice those babies are a little harder to get started and going than, you know, a clutch of eggs that will hatch completely on its own. Those animals seem to come out full of piss and vinegar and ready to eat and take on the world, you know, versus mm-hmm. uh, clutches that you slit and, um, you know, or gone above slitting and, really going extreme to see what's in the egg. You know, those babies definitely come out, I think, with a uh, handicap um, at getting started. Yeah, Yeah, I would agree. Um, I actually had a weird one where I cut the eggs and I cut a little window, and I guess because I cut the window, um, and uh, the snake went the other way and actually sliced, used its tooth to slice out of its egg into uh, a sibling's egg and crawled yeah. in there and then wow. the two of them were in there so i'm like well wait a minute this doesn't make any kind of sense and then i found the hole um and i've also had animals kind of uh i manually tip them like i cut the egg they kind of come out and then they go back in the egg and i've had one that drowned when it went back in the egg it didn't come back out again i don't know if that was one of those like it was too early and should not have come out or something like that so yeah um, I'm on the fence when it comes to cutting, even though I still do usually every year. So, right. But. Yeah, I agree. Well, we are going to be cut off at any point. Um, Keith, thank you for coming and hanging out with us and talking breeding and, uh, awesome as always. Um, how can we follow you? Uh, if we want to see, uh, your, breeding trials for your bow and eye and your Moluccan scrubs? Uh, just, uh, just friend me on Facebook, I guess is the best way nowadays. Cause, uh, I let the website go bye-bye Fred. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm always on, on Facebook and, uh, always willing to talk snakes. So anybody wants to give me a shout, uh, friend me on Facebook and, uh, we'll definitely have some good conversations. Awesome. Cool. Awesome. Well, like I said, thanks. I wish you the best of luck this season. I hope uh, you knock it out of the park. Uh, get boat species. <laughs> that would yeah, be pretty yeah. awesome. <laughs> yeah, that would be good. I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I'll talk to you guys soon, man. Yeah, All right. Good one, Keith. Have a good one. Okay. 
um, yeah, there you go. There's a lot of nuggets of breeding info in uh, in that uh, episode, I think, for people to uh, you know apply to uh, what they're doing yeah, this season. And and, uh, and if you have any direct questions, or if you want us to touch on an issue, you know, now's the time to quick send us an email at info at com. Did I get that right? You did. I'm very proud. Oh, my God. Thank you. <laughs> um, so do that, and, of course, we'll address it on air. If not, if it's something that we already have addressed, we can give you the episodes to listen to, um, or we can at least shoot you an email back to try to get, uh, you know, that's the whole point of this, you know, thing, guys, is to bring education, you know, tell you guys how to teach you guys kind of how to do it, answer some of your questions, guide you through the whole hobby, so – this is the main part of it. If you are breeding and you have questions, please reach out. So, yeah, I'm thinking uh, on our holiday show, we'll probably hit a little more on, um, you know, you know where, where we're at. Um, and, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's only a few to go. A few oh more shows God. to go, Owen. Uh, uh, let me leave you people for two and, weeks. Yeah, I'm going. I'm going dark. Once uh, <laughs> you may not come once back. we hit that two weeks, man, it's it's nothing, you know. So if you want to talk to me, you better talk to me before then. Actually, uh, I have some emails I have to catch up on. I apologize. You better drive to my house and talk to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You better have my personal phone number and text me if you want to get in touch with me. Otherwise, you're screwed. It ain't um, happen. But. Uh, <laughs> uh, so next week, uh, we are joined by uh, – actually, I want to say congratulations to him as well because uh, he just had a baby. Um, oh, nice. Garrett Hartel from Reach Out Reptile. Yeah. Um, we're going to be talking about uh, – we well, we met uh, Garrett. Um, he listens to the show, but uh, we met him at Tinley, and uh, he was uh, chatting with me about um, uh, dwarf and super dwarf retics, which is one of those – I don't know. There's a lot of confusion and stuff about uh, about that whole uh, group, um, but uh, we're going to be talking about the care and the, you know the differences between uh, you know regular retics and super dwarf retics, and um, you know it's just so it's 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 the usual thing like with these uh, species that uh, are not really in the mainstream, I guess you would say, or not worked with as much. Um, yeah, you know, there's a lot of misinformation. Uh, I know a lot of people cross, uh, you know, dwarfs and super dwarfs into mainland morphs and stuff like that. Uh, he's going to give us the lowdown. Um, how to get those uh, cool snakes in those tiny packages. Um, so, uh, I don't know. We'll see how it goes. Uh, so, that's that show. And then me and you are still trying to – well, you told me today, but uh, we're going to do – you know, you're going to – you're I'm finally going to get to go to your Tuesday night uh, no, movie Tuesday, thing. Tuesday movie thing. And I'll be your gone. friends will you be so have, excited. You should have all the IJ people in the world on and just get it out of your yes. system. Bang it so out. We don't, have have, <laughs> we don't even have one IJ show in the 2018 season. Just get yeah. it done now. and then We've never done an IJ show, my friend. That's what I'm saying. Do it now. <laughs> <So> <laughs> <laughs> we've been saying, doing this for six I, years and we've I'm never nipping hit it in the butt oh okay alright fair enough um, but uh, yeah we're going to be doing that and I think uh, we have a jungle show lined up too um, but uh, I got to get clarification for that are you still right. there 
Yeah. Oh, right okay. Here. Yeah, you are. I my, thought, my, I, thought like, I lost Jack. No, I heard a click. Something. It did. It went click, and then I'm like, what the hell was that? So I think I accidentally muted myself. So I'm not going to okay. touch anything, and we're just oh. going to. Well, you should try hitting that mute button when you uh, start hitting your keyboard. I'll do Hit what I want. First. All right? No. no it's fine. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that's next week. Uh, act, uh, you know, I want to say happy Thanksgiving to everyone and uh, everyone out there. Hopefully uh, you have a, have a nice day with your family or whatever you do. Um, and for us, uh, Morelia Python Radio, uh, you know the deal. Um and I just want to throw this out there for some reason, some of the calendars that were kind of like lost in transition somehow, they all yeah. came back to me. So <laughs> I apologize about that. And I will be mailing them all out yeah. tomorrow. Uh, oh, God damn it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Well, you know what? I, I think it is the, so I, I work in Jersey and I drop yeah. them off at this post office and like, you know, we send out these like, uh, you know, our weekly flyer and stuff uh, yeah. and we put them in an envelope and they all weigh the same. So technically, when I go and I drop them off, they should just all be, you know what I mean? But we get away. random yeah. ones of that back, too. So I don't know. I'm not using them anymore. <laughs> I'm done with this stupid uh, postal Jersey postal service. So, yeah. well, it's all united, but what are you going to yeah. do? Uh, anyway. I apologize about that, and I will get them out. There's about, I think there's like ten of them that uh, just kind of pop back. So you got thirty days to get them out there because we are still, we haven't hit the first of the year yet. So you know. Oh yeah, they'll get them before get that. Time. You know, uh, the people over in Australia and Europe, man, man, I'm trying my best. I don't know. I can't make it go any faster than what it is, but uh, <laughs> you know, hopefully, hopefully it gets there in a month. Um, I yeah. think that's enough time, but, uh, you know, there we go. So that's the deal with that. So, uh, and, and if you want one, if you're interested in one, I still have a few available. Um, you can hit me up, um, on Facebook and, uh, I'll take care of it. Um, so Morelli Python radio, check out the podcast, listen to the back shows, our website's MoreliPythonRadio.com. Our email is info at Morelli Python radio. You can figure out the rest from there. Um, as far as myself, E.B. Morelia, uh, my website, ebmorelia.com. I'm really thinking of like pushing more towards not posting as much on Facebook and just really working off my website. And, Become um, one of those but, guys. Uh, yeah. 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 I think I'm I'm headed towards that way. I don't know. I'm becoming that curmudgeon old man, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Get off my lawn, <laughs> you little <laughs> bastards. <laughs> you know? Um, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, I think, you know, I put work into it. I might as well really use it and utilize it. So check it out, ebmorelia.com. Um, and my email is eric at ebmorelia.com. So I got. Cool. Uh, you guys can go to rogue-reptiles.com. Check out all the stuff we got going on over there. Uh, you can also look up rogue reptiles on facebook.com see what we have there i will be attending the white plains reptile show on sunday i'm not vending but i will be there and can drop off animals free of charge let me know what you're looking for and it's pretty much the only way you're probably going to get one this time because uh it's getting pretty cold pretty fast so shipping is definitely shutting down quickly um if you wanted to check out what we have coming up in 2018 season the Breeding Journal is up there. It's not up to date, but mostly up to date. 
So you can check that out and then let me know if there's anything you're interested in and be added to the list. And that's all we have for everybody this week. So we'll say good night and we'll catch everybody back here next week for some more Morelia Python radio. Good night. <laughs>